Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am your host, Ben Chavez, and I would like to thank everyone for joining me again this month. Uh, we have a really special and uh, rather large show for you today, so I'm going to keep this intro as brief as possible. Today's show is, again, Lyle McDonald. Lyle was with us a few months back, did a great show, as a matter of fact, our best-rated and most-downloaded show, uh, on the subject of fat loss. And it was a very systematic and comprehensive talk on the subject of how to lose body fat, and uh, what people do wrong, what people do right, uh, all of the ancillary thoughts and ideas related to that topic, and uh, it was such a big hit, it was such uh, a conversation generator that I thought the uh, the natural response was to bring Lyle back and talk about the converse. So today's conversation, we have just about two hours of information from Lyle um, in relation to the acquisition of body weight and lean mass. So basically the complete opposite of last show. This is the get bigger show where the last show was the get smaller show. And uh, Lyle is really just packed full of information on the topic. Uh, there's not many people in the industry that I think can talk for two hours uh, coherently and systematically about the subject and really have that much to say. And, and in fact, Lyle does. It's amazing. Um, I really would like to point out um, that uh, people pay $50, $100 a seat to go to seminars and uh, talks by, quote, gurus, and they don't leave with information of this caliber. So I really, really want, as you listen to this, I really want you to, one, believe that this is the real deal, and two, to really uh, recognize the generosity of Lyle. Um, he's really, I, I, can't, I can't say it any other way, he's really giving away the ranch. The man writes books for pay, uh, and basically, it's this information. This is this is it, folks. This is everything you need to know. So, without any more from me, uh, the next thing you'll hear is me bringing on the phone, Mr. Lyle McDonald. You're listening to Sports Performance Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be special. We have on the line Mr. Lyle McDonald. Lyle has already given us everything we need to know about fat loss and... It was such a success, and it was so well presented and so exciting that I couldn't wait to bring him back to talk about the flip side of the coin. Lyle is going to tell us everything we need to know about weight and muscular gain, diet, training, nutritional strategies to make you bigger and stronger. This is really our core stuff. Boys and girls, this is going to be good. Strap in. Lyle, how are you doing? Very well, Roderick. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. I loved it. The listeners loved it. Your last show was amazing. I'm awesome. really excited for this. Okay, okay. what I'm going to try to do for anybody who, who kind of remembers the fat loss interview was use a very similar structure. You know, I kind of went from the global picture to the, the smaller picture in order. Um, and what I really want to start with is realistic rates of gain and total muscle gain, right? Like I talked about realistic amounts of fat loss, how long you need to plan your diet to get there, because most people really um, underestimate it. So we'll start there. I'm, I'm going to focus mainly on males. Um, I am, you know, 
that we talked about involved in a, a women's book right now. And I'll make a few comments. I know there's women out there who are very interested in muscle growth. Men, by and large, are more interested in muscle growth. Every guy, Broderick did it, I did it, you hit. 15, 16 years old, that's what you want to do. You go to the gym, find the biggest guy, ask him for advice, and that's what you do. It's great if you do that in high school because puberty is sort of its life. It's a built-in steroid cycle. You know, The guys that do a lot of training in, in their high school years, that's the time to do it. Anyway... So global, global, look at total muscle gain first, because this actually brings up an issue I see a lot of people getting into these days. I, I tend to use like a rough estimate for males, like a maximal level of total growth, right? This is a career's worth of muscle growth. If you're genetically lucky, you're looking at maybe 44, 40 to 45 pounds of muscle, and not every guy will even get there. Like that, that's kind of a top one. All right, so if you assume your typical high school kid, Starts at 140, whatever, 10 to 15 percent body fat. So he's got you know 130 pounds of muscle, 125 to 130 pounds of muscle. Over a career, he may be getting to 175, 185 lean. You know, and and people will disagree with that. But if you ever get bored and go to a natural bodybuilding show, you will find that the biggest classes are the middleweights. There's a lot of 165s. There's a lot less 175s. And by the time you get to the heavyweights, the guys that are 200-ish, there's not many. And a lot of them don't ever get into shape. Like realistically, unless you start big, unless you're six foot one and start fairly muscular, you're just not going to get there. Other people use some different equations. Alan Aragon has numbers that are very similar to mine in terms of, of what you can gain first year, second year, third year. Martin Birkin, who's an intermittent fasting guy, did some numbers um, looking at, at top naturals. guy named Casey Butt once uh, did some analysis, and there's a famous paper on uh, the fat-free muscle, fat-free mass index, where he analyzed a bunch of uh, professional bodybuilders who are presumably natural and, and set kind of a, a maximum level of muscle mass. Um, That's a very interesting paper. I'm I'm really familiar with that paper, and I I'm a little suspect on the data set, but the the general premise of the paper is still very very interesting. And right, it could be could be construed as a bit depressing to the natural athlete. It is, although if you, you know if you crank the numbers on you know a guy who hits that top end, and I think it was like a 25 fat free mass index, and I don't know what the numbers work out to. Um, was kind of, that was about the maximum he felt before steroids were very much implicated. And remind me, I'll come back because people have brought up that there are some weird exceptions that are showing up these days, but they are really only that. Again, if you're looking at provably natural bodybuilding contests, you're just not seeing a lot of guys over 200, and especially not if they're well-conditioned. You're just not. You're seeing a lot of guys at 165, 175. Now, here's where the problem really comes in, and then make a quick transition to drugs. Right? Keep in mind, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who we know used at least some degree of steroids in the 70s, they didn't use a lot, supposedly. Kind of a pre-contest thing. Dosages were relatively smaller. He competed at like 210 and 220, something around there. He also wasn't, they weren't as conditioned as they are now. He was as dry and as lean as guys are now. He would have been the low 200. Now, that's the guy we know uses drugs, right? We know for a fact he used drugs in the 70s. Now, we have guys walking around at 270, 280 pounds condition, right? These are guys that may carry 300 pounds, 
in the off-season and diet down to 280. These guys are another species. And the drug use is enormous, not only the doses of anabolics, but the ancillaries, GH, IGF-1, prostaglandins, peptides. No, I, I, I don't know enough about it to know what the cocktails are. Bodybuilders have always been on the front lines of chemical warfare. But a lot of what I see, I see people online in forums who are, they're built. Like at 175 and lean, you are pretty big, right? You will be a pretty decently built guy. Compared to the normal person, right? Compared to the normal dude who's 150 or 160 at 20% body fat, you will be enormous. However, they find themselves comparing themselves to these monsters, and they feel small. They, They don't understand it. They don't understand why they can't get that big. And it's because normal natural testosterone levels, which... You know, 300 to 900 milligrams per deciliter in anagram, whatever the units are, right? That's just, there's a maximum amount of muscle a natural will carry. By the time you multiply that tenfold, right? And, and even, you know, you, that, that's how you get an extra, you know, literally 100 pounds of muscle. You know, these guys now are competing 70 pounds or 60 to 70 pounds heavier than Arnold at his peak. Arnold was huge. I mean, comparatively speaking, the guys now are a different species. But I find that people have such unrealistic ideas about what they can gain and at what rate they'll come to next that they do some really dumb things. Either they try to, you know, GFH, get fucking huge. They, they're like, if I gain 100 pounds, I'll be able to diet down and be that big. And they gain 100 pounds of fat, lose several years of their life, diet down if they get there, and they end up exactly where they left off, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, there's a famous paper that a lot of people don't like to pay attention to. I mean, Basin has done a lot of work on testosterone and muscle growth in, in healthy people, right? This isn't cancer patients. This isn't AIDS wasting. This is healthy, natural males. And in one of them, he gave 600 milligrams per week of testosterone. That 600 milligrams puts something like 10 kilos of lean body mass in 12, 20 weeks. I'm going from memory. 20 pounds of muscle in 12 weeks. So some of it was water, but they did studies and showed that it was actual muscle growth. The guys got stronger. In a different study, found that steroids actually increased muscle without training. And this is something nobody nobody wants to accept. That stero- people, you know, guys who use drugs, it's like it's low ethic. You got to train. Like, you know, actually, steroids built as much muscle as training hard. Training hard plus steroids built more. But the fact was, just take drugs, you will get bigger muscles. Now, 600 milligrams is a baby dose for guys these days. There are guys taking a gram a day. Plus, yeah, I was just going to say there are people taking 600 milligrams a day that, that I personally know. So yes, that's sure. completely well, accurate. That's correct. You know, and that's just testosterone. Then by the time you add everything else, you're looking at a physiology that is simply uh, inhuman. Um, quick tangent, there's a guy a New Year's ago, a uh, bodybuilder, and he'd been a good natural bodybuilder, and he went, went on steroids, and he's very honest about it, which I appreciated. And I asked him one time, I go, why did you decide to stop being natural? And he said, I wanted to be supernatural. And I thought that was just the best answer ever, um, just, just the way he phrased it. But you are looking at a non-physiological system that a natural simply can never achieve. But I find guys comparing themselves to these these monsters, and if you're 100 pounds lighter than you will always feel small, even if you're bigger than humanity. But to avoid doing really dumb things, you have to be realistic about how much muscle you're going to actually gain naturally. 
And if you don't, A, you'll be miserable, and B, you will do some things that will probably do very bad things for your physique. I knew another guy years ago on a forum. He was he looked awesome. He was like 190, sub 10%. I was like, dude, you should go crush every natural competition you enter. He was fantastic. He, he decided there was no genetic limit. I didn't know his work ethic. Last time I saw him, he was 300 pounds of lard. And I told him, by the time you diet back down, you're going to end up right back at 190. But he refused to accept this. People refuse to accept that there is a genetic limit. But I got news for you. There is. Now, quick back to the, the whole fat-free mass index thing. But like you said, the data set was not huge. You know, first he looked at top-level bodybuilders uh, from early contests, presumably before drugs came in. Then he looked at, I think it was a college students, a group of athletes that were, I think, either admitted to being natural or not and found that there was this cutoff. Now, I've had people point out, well, some of the natural bodybuilders are the big guys, are exceeding that by a little bit, like maybe they get to 26. And they're going to see this is provably false. Well, number one, these guys started big, right? Big, big, super heavyweight, natural bodybuilders started big. Also, I think a lot of the current supplements that are being called supplements, such as some of the, the selective androgen receptor modulators that are working, those are drugs, right? I don't give a shit that semantically they are being sold as supplements. Those are drug compounds, and we can find, we can play word games, and you can say that I'm making it, but these are drugs. They're being developed as pharma, by pharmaceutical companies. These are not supplements, even if we're calling them that. Some others have made the point that, you know, probably the top-level athletes don't go into bodybuilding. Okay, fine, they're going into football or whatever, and it's usually, let's be honest, enormous black guys, right? You've got a shack going into basketball, the dude is 6'2 and, what, 320 pounds? These guys are gigantic. These are genetic exceptions. A guy who's 5'8 and started at 140 or 150 or 160, I'm sorry, you're not getting there. There is a limit to how much muscle you can ever grow. And even the big guys, I guarantee you they've got testosterone at the high range. They've got 900 to 1,000. I think 1,100 is the top normal cutoff. If you're a dude starting with 500 testosterone, low average, or average, you're not getting there. And if you're like me, who's had a testosterone of 290 my whole life, guess what? You need to pick a different sport. You should probably go be a runner because, uh, objectively, you're always going to suck. <laughs> and that's just reality of it. So that that's kind of a reality check on how much muscle and natural is going to grow, period. Um, and people just need to accept that. Yeah, I, uh, I actually completely agree with you. I try really hard not to make these interviews about me, but I, I can, I can, can corroborate that with slightly different numbers. It's sure. typically what I tell people is, you know, a good bodybuilding career, a, you know, a really, you know, good, succinct bodybuilding career is usually 10 or 12 years. You usually are not yeah. thinking competitively beyond that. Sure. And quite honestly, I tell people, if you can gain three U.S. pounds of muscle, kilogram and a half. Right. If you can gain three pounds of muscle a year for right. your career, you are absolutely killing it. Sure. Which puts um, me in that about 30-pound range, you know, that, that you're in about a 40-pound range. You're very similar. It, yeah, it's, you know, and we're, at this point, we're splitting nits. Again, you know, you, you have to be at the top end of the genetic spectrum to get that, that maximum 40 pounds. Most people, it, it's your typical bell curve. Most people will be average, 
and some people will be really unlucky biologically. Um, I coach people for a living, and that's you know literally something I tell them is you know if you're training yeah. without drugs, and you're going to be lucky to gain three pounds a year. And honestly, if you're training with drugs, you're really lucky to gain six, like twice that. That's that's really a sensible <laughs> gain to me. It's funny that you mentioned that. I, I was just rereading an old issue of Peak Training Journal, which you probably remember, a very short-lived and good magazine. And they had an interview with, yeah, I wish it had lived. And they had an interview with Dorian and during the peak of his career. And from one Olympia to the next, he's like, yeah, in that year, I gained about seven pounds. Now, this is a guy that's genetic limit, right? And that's the next thing I want to talk about, which is rate of muscle gain and what are realistic numbers. But this is a guy who is using a lot of drugs. And if you don't believe me, the listeners should go Google and find pictures of what he looks like now, now that he's off. He's, a, I mean, I'm not criticizing, but he is truly a shadow of his own self, which is funny because he's called a shadow. But when you take away, there's also some great pictures of Kevin Laverone, who is just a giant. And now he doesn't look like he trains. And I'll tell you why the answer to, the answer to that is, He's not on every drug at high doses, period. But, yeah, so he was like, yep, I gained 7 pounds. I was 15 pounds heavier in contest, but only because I dieted better. And that was with a lot of drugs. Now, I will say that this is true of all sports, right? You make your best games the first year, a little bit less the second year, start to top out at the third year, and then it's a grind, right? If you look at almost any sport, any activity, you're starting to hit your upper genetic limit by about the three, maybe four-year mark. And that's if you're doing it right, and most people are not. So I've typically thrown out numbers that, you know, a male, if he's really lucky and doing it all right, he might get 20 to 25 pounds in that first year. Probably not, but that would be a very top-end number. He might get half of that in the next year, another 10 pounds. He might get half of that again, maybe four to five pounds in the third year. If you look at natural pros, talk to some of these guys, they are grinding for a year to gain a pound because they are near, as you get closer to your genetic limits, everything slows down. And this is true of every sport. Look at the Ben Johnson, look at endurance athletes. He were, would work for a year intensely to take three tenths, three hundredths, five hundredths of a second off his best time. You are working exponentially harder for exponentially less gains. So certainly as a beginner, you can gain, you will gain proportionally faster just because you're untrained. And the bigger your muscles get, the slower your gains are going to be. And that kind of brings me to, well, quick tangent. Women cut these numbers by at least half, right? A natural woman who gains 20 pounds of muscle is doing phenomenally. Absolutely. And that's going to take her three years. Some women who have what's called polycystic ovary syndrome have about two to three times the normal testosterone levels of a woman. They're always the ones that do really well in natural bodybuilding because they have a physiology that's closer. You know, they're still not even to the low average of men. But as we talked about before we started this, when you double or triple testosterone levels in, in a woman, it has a much more significant effect. They're still not gaining enormously more, but they gain more effectively. They tend to be drawn towards strength, power, sports. There's other biological differences. That's a topic for another yeah, day. But probably, a woman should cut these numbers in half. Easy. Yeah, probably what, what you mentioned earlier, that the, the psychological and emotional predispositions are actually real benefit. Absolutely. Women who, women who don't have that are not going into bodybuilding or physique. They're going into fitness or bikini. That's just the reality. Of it. Um, so, so women should cut these numbers in half, if not by more. Like a woman might train 
in a lot of the beginner studies, like four to six months, they might gain four pounds of muscle. Like, it's a grindingly slow process for women. Their biology is just not geared towards that. They do, interestingly, gain the same, they make the same percentage gains as men, but since they're starting at a lower level, the absolute numbers are much lower. Like, they might gain the same, whatever, 10%, but 10% of a smaller number is a smaller number, so. Um, but anyway, that, that brings me to the rate of gain, right? So let's say you're a guy, you have your first year, you have the potential to gain 20 pounds of muscle in that year. We'll divide that out. You divide that by 12 months, right? We'll make the very incorrect assumption that you're gaining consistently every month. And you and I know full well that muscle growth doesn't work that way. It, it happens and starts and stops for some reason. And maybe we could theor, you know, theorize about why that is. I've got hand-waving ideas. But you tend to, you'll, you'll get a big burst of growth, and then you'll just be stale and not do anything, and then it'll happen again. Like, there's some weirdness. But let's assume that you're gaining consistently every month. Well, 20, let's say 25, just to make the math easier, divided by 12, that's two pounds a month, right? That's a fantastic rate of gain. And most guys won't even, for a woman, cut that in half, one pound a month. Of muscle. That's barely measurable, and women have other issues going on with keeping track of their progress. One to two, one pound a month for a woman and two pounds a month for a natural male is huge, right? So guys see these ads, 12 pounds of muscle in six weeks, or 20, or whatever the, you know, the numbers have been getting bigger for the last three decades, the insane supplement ads. No, just, just no. Um, it doesn't, or you get guys that are trying to force feed their muscle gain. And, and in, in contrast to fat loss, fat loss is different here. With fat loss, bigger deficits will lead to faster fat gain, fat loss, right? You can actually do it that way. That's that other yeah, process. The, 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 the fundamental laws of physics demand that right. you know, if, the, if you the, a big the energy deficit, balance will, be met somewhere. Yes. Right. You will lose fat faster with a larger deficit, but muscle gain does not work that way because there is a maximum rate at which muscle can be synthesized. So there's actually a really fascinating study that there's this researcher in, like, the Netherlands doing some really good work, and it's with elite, highly trained athletes. And she looked at people who were either given nutritional counseling or allowed to eat ad-lib, which just means eating as much as they want. And what they found is that over the, the length of the study – the, the, the nutritional counseling group, which had like a 300 calorie per day surplus, which isn't very much, and the group that had like a 500 calorie per day surplus, they both gained about the same amount of lean body mass, but the larger deficit gained five times as much body fat. Hmm. It was 15% versus 3% total body fat gain, which tells us that there is, once you exceed the calorie surplus to maximize muscle growth, the more you eat, the fatter you get. What's funny you say because it, it's something that I bring up regularly because I personally have a major bitch with supplement companies and I point out to people over and over that it is not a coincidence that the two products every supplement company makes their bones on is either a weight gainer or a fat loss product. So sure. basically everyone exists in a condition of either too goddamn fat or too goddamn skinny. Right. And, and, and actually, I thought you were going to go a different direction with that. Because remember, back in the 90s, right, what was the, the big supplement? Creatine. <laughs> and all the, right, and all the creatine ads were like, these people gained seven pounds of lean body mass in two weeks. Well, here's the thing. Water is lean body mass. And we know for a fact that creatine causes you to hold water. Now, I actually had a really funny argument, right? Anthony Almada, who only the older listeners will know, he, he was running EAS. Right, guy. Right, right? Guy. I spoke with him at the Arnold Expo one year, 
and he actually tried to tell me that the games in the lean body mass from creatine were all actually muscle tissue. I'm like, really? Really? So a lot of products will do that, too. Like, you throw in some creatine in a weight gainer, oh, yeah, your, your lean body mass will go up fast, but it's water weight. Which creatine still has some good uses that we'll talk about, but this well, is there is, really there is, and, and I've and I've actually written about this myself. You know, there is the argument that long-term re- uh, supraphormacologic retention of water does, sure. in fact, lead to a drug-like anabolism. Uh, yeah, the cellular hydration theory. Correct. It, it, it's uh, a real thing, although somewhat nominal, but it is has sure. been biologically proven. You know, they've they've done studies where they've like hyper enhanced uh, cellular cytoplasm, right. and yeah. cells do in fact uh, essentially grow to that new size. It's well, a real fact thing. That, and you you're probably aware of this because of your background, right? Is like for years everybody thought of cells like it was all nuclear receptors and ribosomes and mitochondria, and then finally like some engineers came in and were like, you know, if there were a mechanism by which the cell could uh, perceive stretch, like actual physical, mechanical deformation, that would explain, and they went and looked, and they were like, holy shit, it actually does work that way. There's something in the cell that can perceive or measure or whatever it is, that actual physical expansion or, or shrinking of the cell, and that, that would give a mechanism to this. Whether or not creatine can have the same effect as a pharmacological, I, I don't know. That's a different one, and we'll get to supplements later. But even if nothing else, more water in the muscle tends to make you stronger mechanically. If that lets you lift more weight, which so gets training, like it can have an indirect effect on muscle growth, no question. But that rapid gain in lean body mass is water. If you're talking about actual muscle tissue, right, you're which, looking at... Which is something that you you yourself would be very aware of being with your background. It's, it's the same thing with a ketogenic diet. When you jump on a ketogenic diet, your body weight plummets, but most of that sure. is because you're no longer retaining glycogen, and therefore right. you shed water. water. Yeah. You didn't actually lose fat. You just it deflated right. your musculature. Right. I mean, in studies showed that ketogenic diets, you could lose any from 1 to 15 pounds of water in, like, first three. Big boys lose. They can cycle water like nobody's business, man. They'll lose 10 pounds when they deplete and regain 10 pounds when they carbo-load. And I actually Correct. saw a funny book try to use that to go, yep, I can put 7 pounds of lean body mass on you overnight. It's just a carb-loading protocol. Like, yeah, what a, technically glycogen and water is lean body mass. We're talking about muscle tissue. Now, to get a little bit theoretically up, up my butt, Right. The next question then becomes, well, how much, how many calories does it take to build a pound of muscle? Like Mentor is smiling somewhere right now. Oh, Oh, I know exactly what you're referring to. Just, oh, good God. (laughs) I mean, we can can talk about that, how that math doesn't work. And I'll be honest, and I've, I've looked for years to pin down a number on this, and God, it's damn near impossible, because the data's just not there. However, first let's step back. Okay. One pound of muscle contains about 120 grams of protein, about 25% protein. Most of it's water and other stuff. Now, if you break down a pound of muscle for energy, and I talked about this in the fat loss interview, it's about six or 700 calories. That's what's actually contained in the muscle if you burn, break it down for energy. Right? Now, Menser's brilliant math was, well, if it's 120 grams of protein in a pound, then you gain a pound a month. Well, you divide 120 by 30, and you only need 4 grams of extra protein per day. That's what Prodder is referring to. And he did the he same did. thing with he did the same thing with the calorie math. Well, it's 600 calories a day, uh, in a pound of muscle divided, gaining one pound a month, 
Divide by 30, you only need 20 calories per day surplus. Simple math is simple, and it's wrong. The problem is that synthesizing a pound of muscle costs more energy than is contained within the pound of muscle, right? It always costs more energy to build something than the energy that is contained within it. The question is then what the numbers are. And, and, and I thought asserted, and this is kind of based on animal data in one of some excerpts of the algae books, that A, it takes about 5 grams of protein to store, 5 grams of extra protein per day to store 1 gram of protein in the body. It's about 5 to 1. And, you know, listeners should realize that guys who work with cattle and stuff, putting muscle and weight on these guys, this is a science for them. A lot of bodybuilding drugs come out of, of uh, animal husbandry because these guys want to find ways to make... is a perfect example. Exactly. That came directly out of the animal research, all that stuff, because they want to find the ways to put on the most muscle and fat in the cheapest way possible, and drugs accomplish that. So so they've done the numbers on this. To build a pound of muscle, the best number i found, it's in the 2,600 to 2,700 calorie range. It's somewhere in that general range. Are you familiar with uh, Arthur L. Ray, ALR yeah, yeah, supplement industry? He's a very, yeah. very smart guy. He has a real yeah. science background. Um, he yeah. only plays maniac on, uh, on the <laughs> ads. He's, he's actually a really okay. great guy. And he and Fair I enough. had this exact same conversation and he said because of the enzyme burden required to generate a pound of muscle, you know, there's, yeah. everything's mediated by enzymes and enzymes are made of protein. He said basically sure. your math is five or six to one. He said, for every one whatever you want to retain, you need six times that much. All right, so we're we're right in the same ballpark. You know, this this is not, unfortunately, this is not perfect math. Um, now, I discussed this with a good buddy of mine, a guy named Eric Helms, who's a good natural bodybuilder coach and powerlifter. You know, and he, he does point out that usually you're going to get some fat gains with that muscle. Like, I know lean bulking is a thing, and we can talk about people want to stay ripped, and let's face it, it just doesn't work very well. I'm not saying get fat. I'm saying that gaining a little bit of fat because you're eating enough will allow you to gain muscle marginally faster. Right? There's a difference between gaining fat and getting fat. Duchesne used to use a range of body fat percentages, diet to 8 to 10, gain to 12 to 15, diet back down. So if you get too fat, calorie partitioning goes wrong, men get more estrogen for that, like shit goes wrong. Stay lean. The guys who try to stay ripped year-round make shit for muscle gains. They just don't gain worth a damn. Anyway, he's pointed out that since a little bit of the total weight gain is fat, you might as well just use 3,500 calories a pound and be done with it. And I don't necessarily – it's probably close enough. Probably a little overkill, but I, I, can, I can see the simplicity of that, sure. Sure. And, you know, make again, everything, muscle, fat, everything, it's 3,500 calories a pound. I, I buy it. Yeah. It's just when you're gaining, if you're training properly and eating enough protein and calories, rather than it being majority, you know, 3,500 calories on the way down, majority of fat is what's being lost. 3,500 calories on the way up, the majority of muscle is what's being gained. It's all good. We're we're picking nits at this point, and we're not doing clinical nutrition. So anyway, so let's math that out, right? So let's say you're gaining two pounds of muscle. It's going to cost you, which will have contain about 1,500 calories, but will require a surplus of 7,000 calories over that month. Divided by 30, that's whatever. It's about 250 calories a day. It's in that range. Surplus. Which is that's a staggeringly small number. Right. And, and, and it's funny, I had seen one paper in Untrained. They actually gave them a really enormous surplus, total beginners, and they actually did gain most of the lean body mass. So, like, the first few months, you can maybe, you can gain really fast. 
but I'm assuming we're, we don't have a lot of beginners listening to this, so it's kind of, a, you know, you, you see those, take an underweight high school kid, put them on a gallon of milk a day, and they gain 40 pounds in two months, and most of it's muscle, but they're getting, like, catch-up muscle growth. Like, they're so underweight, and they're in high school, so different population. If we're talking about a guy that starts lifting in his early 20s, he doesn't have the hormonal profile. He's not. So anyway, let's stick with that number. Now, you may or may not agree, you know, should the should you do a surplus every day? Should you split it up on, you know, if you're looking at putting it predominantly on the workout days, take, you know, take that 350 calories, 250 calories a day uh, for, you know, per week or 200 calories every day, but you're really doing it across four training days. Like the daily surplus on your training days ends up being a little bit bigger, but it's still only like three or 400 calories a day. It, it just is. Guys want to all protein shake. It's nothing. Right. And you remember the, the wonderful days of mass gainer 10,000. <laughs> you could get these big uh, dog food bags of protein powder. It was like 10,000 calories per serving, but it was four scoops of protein powder and a gallon of milk. And <laughs> just like the, the, the weight gainer craze went berserk and everybody just got fat as shit. Um, so it really doesn't take... And then, of course, by the time you get more advanced and you're looking at few pounds a year, you just don't need a big surplus. You're, you're not looking at a big and big surplus. And women cut it in half. You're looking at maybe 10% over maintenance, maybe 5% over maintenance. You're looking at a couple hundred, 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 two hundred calories a day. And then, of course, there's also the alchemy. You know, John Perillo would lecture you on the alchemy <laughs> of liberating yeah. stored body fat as usable energy in which to use to manufacture muscle tissue. Sure. Which, which, is, which is is a, a, a mind-bending subject, but he's not entirely wrong. He's just kind of yeah. betraying it. Yeah. yeah. This is a guy that also claimed he had a woman dieting on 9,000 cal- or 600,000 calories a day. So um, I think he had a, I think he had a, a decimal, I think his uh, decimal point on his keyboard didn't work. But um, he, he made some rather ludicrous claims with having to do with MCT oil and all that stuff. But but the point of this is that if you're looking at realistic rates of muscle gain, you know, 20 pounds in the first year, 10 pounds in the second year, 5 pounds, and then jack shit after that for most guys, you're not looking at a lot per week, per month. You're not looking at needing to eat. You don't need the, the liter of ice cream before bed to stay anabolic. I mean, you will stay anabolic, but not in a good way. Um, gaining fat is an anabolic process, too. So I was just going to, I was just going to mention that people do not realize that burning body fat is catabolic and gaining yeah. fat is anabolic. Yes, yeah, that so is true language. Yeah, as I like to, I say this online, candy is anabolic, just not necessarily in a good way. Um, in any case, like, these are kind of some realistic, you know, and again, and maybe we can discuss this now, you do see that weird punctuated growth. Overnight, you seem to gain three or four pounds, and then it's nothing for two months, and then you gain a few more, like you're training right, you're, you're doing everything right, but nothing, and then click, something happens. The question is why. All complex systems behave that way. All all complex sure. systems are quantified. No one no one's completely clear on why, but it's true. Sure. I mean, some of it we can hand wave and say, ah, there's a black box in the middle that uh, there's an old there's a classic far side cartoon and it's physicist and there's a big equation on the left and an answer on the right and in the middle it just says, and magic happens. And sometimes that's the best answer you can give. Um, 
I personally think, like, if you look at, at muscle tissue, you've got skeletal muscle, you've got cellular stuff, you've got myonuclear, you know, proliferation, you've got blood vessels. And I've always kind of been of the opinion that the muscle isn't really going to grow until everything is kind of caught up. Like, if you have a severe limiting factor, if you, you know, you, you've been putting the tension load, heavy weight, until the blood vessels catch up to perfuse that muscle, there's maybe it's myostatin. I don't know, but like, I, I think if you look at some of the early ideas, the Trenine Perilla was into this, so it's hell, so it's Vince Garanda, that sometimes doing that direct, uh, like, you know, vascular training, you know, pump training type stuff to stimulate the muscle to build, you know, just the, the, the supporting structures, including the blood vessels, including, you know, glycogen water like you talked about. Like, I think everything has to kind of come together at once, and then the body can release whatever inhibition is going on. Um, that's kind of my own hand-weaving well, well, theory. Throw, I'll, take, I'll, take a, I'll take one minute, and I'll throw another layer on that. Um, okay. I was very, very deeply involved in some of the uh, analytical studies at University of Arizona, and mm-hmm. one of them was uh, an animal, an agricultural-funded study on on uh, cattle lean masses. and. Okay. The indication, there was no firm, because radio uh, spectroscopy and some of the other stuff that was used was in its infancy at the time, and it wasn't as accurate. Okay. But the suspicion was that the, uh, the, um, the, the waves of growth were so regular that it was probably related to a protein turnover issue, probably, suspectedly, at the ribosomal level. Meaning okay. that the life cycle of the actual ribosomes that manufactured a protein was okay. such that it, it it manifested itself in waves. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can. And it, it's funny. Uh, and, well, for listeners who aren't who don't remember high school bio, like uh, cellular biology, ribosomes are just the structures that take individual amino acids and make whole proteins. Right. The, the nucleus tells them what to build. If you've got sufficient amino acids in the cell, you get proteins. That that's what Roderick is talking about. It's funny, if, did you ever read Duchesne's old, the original Ultimate Diet? Absolutely. The original manual? I, I own a first edition yeah. copy. I cherish it. Yeah, yeah. no, get this. Somebody sent me an original copy of the Ultimate Steroid Handbook, and I cherish that thing. Um, just from a historical. In any event, he talked about that. Even at that time, when we didn't know a lot, he pointed out that you needed to sort of stress the ribosomes to upregulate ribosome activity to get the biggest effect from your heavy training. So he, he and I know they've, they've shown different, uh, part of the reason different anabolics work is they're targeting different structures in the cell. Some of them are directly protein synthesis, some of them are nuclear, some of them I would not be stunned to find activate ribosome activity. Probably the, the more refined, cleaner anabolics like primobolin, I suspect, sure. do have, do have a more ribosomal upregulated effect. Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, we're beyond what, what little I know about the topic, but it wouldn't stun me for that. You know, we, we've also got the whole myostatin thing. Myostatin is this inhibitory protein that sort of limits muscle growth and can go up and go down. And um, if, if listeners go Google the Belgian blue bull or just the, 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 the myostatin null bull, this is a, a bull that whatever, genetic mutation that was probably a combination that has doubled the, like, it looks, it looks like Ronnie Coleman as a bull, quite honestly, like, it, it's, the thing is a beast, and because it lacks myostatin, muscle growth is unchecked, or relatively unchecked, um, 
and one might point out with no additional activity. It's just a biological but activity. It grows that way. And, yep. and there's been a couple of kids born, you know, you've seen these pictures of these little jack bodybuilder kids that are thought to have that myostat mutation. And, he, and even that, that gets into the genetics of all this. Uh, couple, well, at least one of those kids came from two professional strongmen. They were Russian as a strongman, a strong woman, obviously. And in my opinion, I bet both of them, part of the reason they were successful at strongman was because they only had one copy of the myostatin gene in the first place, right? That was part of what allowed them to succeed. They had a kid, the kid won the genetic lottery, and he's just jacked. Like, the kid, and they, I mean, they started training him young, but kids before puberty don't have the hormones, and this, these kids' bodybuilding is kill for this kid's disease. Um, but, but so that may be involved, you know, there's, there's something that seems to be inhibitory that eventually... Some part of the system goes, okay, we can we can grow now. Um, so there's something going on, but that's another thing that uh, people trying to gain muscle just eat. Fat loss is the same way. You stall and stall for three weeks, and then boom, you, you know, wake up five pounds lighter. That's probably a water retention issue, but like you said, that's how biological systems work. They're not linear. Not at all. We want them to be. No, no complex <laughs> system. Anything. You, you look at tree growth. You look at mm. – there's, there's no complex system, much less biological system, that's – it's smooth. Yeah. They're all gradated and, and quantified. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a function of the universe we live in, I believe. But it's, but it's frustrating, you know. I, I think another part of it with muscle growth is because it's so slow, it's often any growth you're getting is below the error bar from our, for our measurement method, right? Like a, a, if you're using a basic tape measure, unless if you've got one of those little spring-loaded ones, you can get closer, but you're, you're only getting a measurement that's accurate within half an inch or whatever. Most body composition methods have an error bar of 3 to 5%. A 1% change could be real, could be noise, could be any. It, it's not detectable. Um, so I think there's that aspect of it, too. Growth is just a, so a real life scientific A real-life scientific notion that has been lost in the yeah. era of high-tech gadgets. But if you read um, Leonardo da Vinci talks about it, Galileo mm. talks about it, the principle sure. of the least noticeable difference. Right. The only place I've seen it written, Arthur Dreschler actually wrote about that in his Olympic encyclopedia, but it, 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 he was looking more at making training changes. And he was like, you know, you need to change one variable in a little bit different context. But, yeah, even even DEXA and BODPOD and stuff, have an error bar of like 5 to 10%. And in lean people, the numbers go even souther. Like, these are not developed for athletes. Correct. Bone density bone density is different. Tissue density of muscle versus connective tissue versus organs is different. These things are not... I mean, my God, there's people who've done underwater weighing, lean bodybuilders, and it said they had negative body fat because all the, all, the, all the assumptions are wrong. So that there's a lot of methodological issues on top of the biological propensity to go and start to stop, on top of the slow rate of gain that, that can make it really difficult to pick this up sometimes. So we are and looking throw, at a long... And throw an emotional psyche on top of that. <laughs> yeah, well put. That's a whole different <laughs> interview topic. Um, okay, so I think we've covered that pretty extensively in terms of some real-world numbers. You know, it might be worth touching on you know, on the steroid issue, because clearly that just changes the system, um, you know, something to consider, right? We know that a heavy training session can upregulate protein synthesis, right? The muscle's actually building muscle for 
24 to 36 hours. Beginners, it's longer. Advanced people, it's a little bit less, right? Like there's, there's a, there's, it's transient. It's not a big increase. Well, if you're taking anabolic steroids, which we know stimulate protein synthesis, you are anab- anabolic 24-7, 365, except Absolutely. when you're off, right? You are getting a stimulus, a, a drug on, that's on top of the training, which may or may not be additive. It's a different system, and I think it's part of why you see not only larger gains per, per month or per year, relatively, but you're also seeing faster gains. You can get a bodybuilder taking a bunch of drugs. Like I said, that one study, they gained a year's worth of muscle, right, 10 kilos of lean body mass in 20 weeks. So they, they with a baby dose of steroids, they made about double the rate of progress a natural would. There's an amazing, there's old data by Gilbert Forbes, very early stuff. And he looked at individual guys that were taking anabolics. And he, he drew up this dose response curve and basically showed that more drugs equals more growth. It was very simple. Duchesne uh, wrote about that, how they were very, uh, very linear and didn't mimic a lot of other drugs. You know, antibiotics and all sorts of other things yes. are very rate limited and uh, antibiotic sure. steroids do not seem to be. More uh, better. As a matter of fact, something Dan pointed out um, in a conversation to me personally is that not only are they somewhat linear, there seems to be a somewhat hyperbolic curve in that right. certain dose thresholds work infinitely better than the dose right. before them. Yes. And no yeah, one knows why yeah. that is. And, 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 you know, it's probably, it's just a typical dose response and something, you know, you are overdriving the system to such a degree. You know, 200 milligrams of testosterone a week, you'll get a peak that's slightly above the normal range. I think there's a, an HRT doc who, like, his rule of thumb is that the first couple of days you'll get about 10 times like, the increase in blood testosterone is about 10 times the dose. If you take 100 milligrams, you'll get to about a 1,000, about a 1,000-point increase. If you take 200, 2,000, 300, like, you're looking, it's a linear increase, but it could very much have a potentially synergistic effect, especially when you're taking multiple drugs. Because if right. multiple drugs are targeting different parts of that muscle system, and bodybuilders have figured this out through a hell of a lot of trial and error, you're getting... A, a multiplicative effect. What was interesting, right, so one of the guys, he was taking one drug, he was taking 140 milligrams of Anavar per day, right? And Anavar, as we know, that's a girl drug. I mean, that's that's Anavar, Winstrol, you know, the, those are typically the girl drugs. But he was taking very high dose, and high doses of the baby comp. He gained, forget what the duration of use was, but it wasn't even a year. He gained 20 kilos of yeah. lean body mass. 45 pounds. He gained career's worth in less than a year. And even if some of it was water retention, which we know certain compounds do, that's just staggering, right? This whole thing that, oh, it's not the drugs, it's my work ethic, I'm sorry, buddy, bullshit. If you you look at most athletes, their training protocols are so absurd that their their training is usually a hindrance, not a help. Yeah, and even the guys that are trained, just Jesus Christ, you know, don't even... You got some power lifter, and suddenly he goes on, and he gains 35 pounds, and his bench goes up 150 pounds. Did you train just as hard before? Why weren't you getting the gains? What was the variable? Drugs. So just knock it off. Knock off this, this, oh, they only help a little. They only help a little. Why do you guys use so much of them? I mean, you know, this isn't scientific, but the success leaves clues. As Duchesne always pointed out, if the drug doesn't work, bodybuilders drop it. And if it works, they use it. Bodybuilders wouldn't do this if it didn't work well. Um, Going back to mentioning Dan Duchesne and the nonlinear curve, uh, Dan actually, 
he in, intimated, he didn't actually say it, but he intimated that he thought it was actually secondary systems. For instance, okay. um, a 750 milligram dose of testosterone might not have radical impacts on conversion to estrogen. But uh, at a threshold dose of, say, a 1,000, suddenly you get this large rollover to estrogen, and that estrogen makes a change yeah. in the physiology that Fair then enough. makes the yeah. whole thing work better. So he felt yeah, okay. there was kind of threshold numbers where another system brought on some other action. Well, and that's that's always been one of the the areas of confusion. I know some some very some some very detail oriented uh, biochemical type people have like done the numbers, and if you look at like the average androgen receptor density on muscle, it should become saturated at a way lower dose than we know work. So there's something going on. It could be a non-genomic action at the cell receptor, but there's something going on that is not simply explained by binding of an androgen to the receptor, because that should be saturated at such a smaller dose, and yet we know bigger doses work better. So whether it's overflow to DHT, cortisol blocking was thrown around for a while, and I don't know where the current belief on that is, whether it's estrogen, which actually has some very positive effects on muscle remodeling, it's actually profoundly important in women, um, why, you know, guys found out the hard way. Big time anti-estrogens, you, you don't grow as well. You don't grow as well, you don't get an erection, and you really just don't feel good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't need, you don't want too much, so you don't get too much water retention or gyno, but too little is just like, so there, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, Dan was, God almighty, the man was so ahead of the curve, so creative, like, of course. Phenomenally intuitive. Phenomenally yeah. intuitive. He, he made, he, just, he made really radical leaps with very little information. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've tried to, like, you know, live up to his legacy of at least being an asshole, but he was creative in a way that I'm not. I'm a grinder. Like, I will just grind on the literature and grind on concepts. Every once in a while, I get a break. He was intuitive and creative, could think so laterally and just make these logic leaps that were almost always right. I mean, it was amazing. Anyway. Okay, so that's topic one and two. I guess, you know, we'll touch on nutrition, talk a good bit about that before, so might as well just kind of cover that, right? So we already established, don't need a huge surplus. Which almost, in a sense, wraps it up, quite honestly. It, it, it does, but, you know, people, uh, Dan used to talk about all the plumbing, and there, there are other issues that guys get really uptight about. So one, of course, is how much protein do you actually need? And this has been one of those ongoing debates forever and ever and ever, and you've got, you know, the old school that say you don't need any more, You've got the athletes who's always been like, you need all the protein, and then there's folks that are somewhere in the middle, and I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in, in the middle, and, and I do think there's a difference between naturals and, and, uh, and drug users for sure. You know, the, the old rule of thumb is one gram per pound. Like, that's, that's the old saw. And that's okay, you know? One thing to remember is one pound of total body weight is actually a little bit higher on lean body mass, because some of your weight is depending on your body fat percentage. Um, if you're truly fat, one gram per pound is way more than your lean body mass. Um, you know, it's usually claimed that anything more than like 1.6 grams per kilo, which is about 0.8 grams per pound, is all that's needed to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But I think that misses part of the picture, right? So if you go back a little bit, the body's always engaged in what are called futile cycles, which means that it's breaking stuff down as it's synthesizing it. Does this with fat? At any given time, fat is being stored, fat is being released. It's the net effect that determines what happens. You store more than you release, you gain fat. If you release more and burn more than you store, 
Same thing for muscle. Right now, our muscle is being built up and broken. It's called protein turnover. Uses energy. Uh, tangentially, meals stimulate protein turnover. Part of the thermic effect of food, those calories you burn, that's an increased protein turnover. And people go, well, why? This seems really inefficient. And it is in one sense, but it's also very adaptive because let's say your body needs amino acids right now. Well, if they're being broken down and available, same thing with fat. If all of a sudden you go start running, your body's like, shit, need energy now. If some is already available in the bloodstream, it's right there. And the same thing goes for amino acids. I want to so interrupt, you, I wanna interrupt mm-hmm. you for a second just to say something. that I, I'm sure that the dumb bitch is not listening, but I suffered through some really horrible professors in college. Okay. I, rem- I remember a bio- I remember a physio- exercise physiology course, and the subject of nutrition came up, and this mm-hmm. dumb bitch stood in the front of the room and said, well, you know, and there's no real mechanism for the human body to store protein, so it's, in- it's imperative that you get protein every few hours. And I held up my hand, and I said, wait a minute, I've made my entire career on storing amino acids. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And, of course, <laughs> and of course, she lost her mind and asked me to leave the room, but... Right. Um, <laughs> There's, there's like, there's truth and falsehood in what she said. Like, this, this is another guy whose name is escaping me right now. He's done a bunch of work on this. And it's like, we can store fat inertly in fat cells. We can store carbohydrate inertly in muscle glycogen. Strictly speaking, excess protein that's not being used gets burned off from energy. That's kind of what she was getting at. But in the sense that your muscle stores, you don't really want to break that down for energy if you can avoid it. That's what fat, it, it, that's, Sort of, but at the same time, clearly you can store muscle protein in the body. Not acutely, right, if you're walking around with 50 kilograms of unnatural sure. muscle mass, you've yeah, done she, stored it, folks. Sure, she was talking more about on a meal-to-meal basis, but whatever. It's neither, it's neither here nor there. The point I know, of but it, it, it caused me. It, it, it scarred me for life. I remember it to sure. this day, obviously. No, I get it. Well, at least you'd never have a dietitian tell you there is no research that athletes need more protein than normal people. And whenever someone says there is no research, what that means is you've never looked. Right. Right? Yeah. I had a dietitian pull that shit on me at a place I worked. I left about six studies, the, the early lemon studies, there are Tarnapal P studies on this in her inbox, and she just never spoke to me again. Because God forbid she admitted that she was wrong. She was also a vegetarian propagandist, but not getting into that. Anyway. So, muscle protein breakdown is part of the picture. Now, a lot of people are saying that muscle protein breakdown isn't a big part of the system in muscle. I'll be honest, I'm not really up on that literature, but it is a component of it. And I think it's um, short-sighted to overlook that. There's actually a recent study that more protein, they did 40 grams per meal or 70 grams, didn't have any bigger effect on muscle protein synthesis or whole body protein synthesis, but did, in, did decrease muscle, whole body protein breakdown. Now, it wasn't muscle, it wasn't a muscular effect, but it was impacting on other components of the body. I think that's the other aspect that's ignored. Muscle isn't the only tissue that uses protein. Uh, there's a, a paper I've got from way back, uh, Wolf and Phillips, who've done a lot of protein work, I think. Don't swear me to that. Um, and it points out that there are, you know, short-term studies that may not see a big difference in protein, in, in, in muscle growth for different levels of protein intake. Longer term, it may have a difference. They also point out that their connective tissue is critical. Right? Anybody who's ever had a tendon injury, a ligament injury, they know how much that sucks. 
Yes, it turns over very slowly, but it is an important tissue. It does require some protein. Organs require, like, there are other components of the body that are impacted. Well, and, and the aforementioned, in, in the earlier conversation, the aforementioned enzyme burden, is right. they're, they're purely protein. That's what they're made of. Right. This is all part of this system, and we don't, you know, we don't know what all is being upregulated by training, other than we can probably assume all of it. So I, I think, I think just focusing, looking at the amount of protein needed to maximize muscular protein synthesis misses part of the picture. And, you know, realistically, guys have played around. And I know there's some guys that swear they grow just fine on 0.8 grams per pound if they eat enough carbs. Other guys swear they grow better with higher protein. You know, this is kind of anecdotal empirical. There's some Russian studies that higher protein works better. There's the drug issue to take into account. Like, there's a lot of variables here. But one of the big things, and this is where my stance is, that, that was pointed out in this paper, is more protein won't hurt, right? There's no indication that it causes kidney problems, bone loss. It actually, higher protein helps bone health. Like, there's no dangers of too much protein unless it prevents you from eating enough carbs and fat. And that's important for performance athletes, which bodybuilders are not. Um, of course, they also point out that the average person already eats in the range of what they were recommending. It's just like back and forth and back and forth. But they were like, athletes don't care about ivory tower recommendations. They don't give a shit what the science says. They want to know what works. So I don't personally see any problem for natural going 1.2 to 1.4 grams per pound of lean body mass. Right? If you scale that to total, it'll be a little bit lower. But whatever. Lean body mass, I think, is the better the better in your method. protein book, I think you pretty much yeah. fell right around the three gram per kilogram mark. Am I yeah, right on I that? Think that? Yeah, that's. I think that's. You know, is it maybe slightly overkill? Maybe, but it it probably won't hurt. But anything. as you said, it has very little potential downside. Sure. Um, a lot of people, if nothing else, and this is, I'll be honest, this is a Martin Burton pointed this out. Okay, look, protein is the most filling nutrient. Right, protein is what keeps you fuller. Carbs and fat forever. Well, protein wins every time. Guys that are trying to maintain a small surplus to not get fat, guess what? More protein will keep you from eating all the other food. Um, I've got a girl I'm working with with the typical female diet, and I put her on a higher protein diet. And, man, it's amazing. Two months later, she's like, holy shit, higher protein intakes? She's like, they're a life hack. You get to eat a more volume of food for fewer calories. I'm not hungry. I feel better. Like, bingo. So hard getting women to eat enough protein. They don't. They crave carbs and fats. They're the one. Men eat all the protein. Women, it's really hard to get them. But when you do, oh my God, the magic happens. Now, um, now having said all that, in terms of nutrition related toward gaining of lean, ideally lean mass, mm-hmm. what's your thought on the carbohydrates? Uh, what do they say? Preserve or or yeah. And the basic idea, this kind of is more of a dieting thing, but is important here, right? The body does need carbs for certain processes, you know, certain tissues, uh, part of the kidney, the eyeball. Um, you know, you'll usually hear that the brain only runs on carbs, but the brain can't actually use ketones. Uh, there is a, a minimal requirement for carbohydrates, and those can be made from protein. So what they're saying yeah, is that odd. handle that easy. Right, if you've got insufficient carbs, your body needs to break down more protein for glucose. This is part of why you need more protein on a diet, right? We've known that for 40 years. The higher calories go, technically the lower protein can be, 
and vice versa. When you're dieting, you need even more protein. Now, is do you give much credence to the idea that carbohydrates are insulinogenic and sure. insulin influences protein turnover rate? Yeah, that's probably, you know, that, that's been kind of back and forth and back and forth. You know, for a while it looked like amino acids, especially the branch chains, leucine, isoleucine, valine, directly stimulate protein synthesis. Insulin inhibits protein breakdown. That was the whole protein-carb thing after training. It does look like protein raises insulin enough to probably have a maximal effect. There are other, you know, we'll talk about post-workout nutrition in a second. There are other benefits to carbs in terms of refilling muscle glycogen, and people like eating carbs, and, and they're delicious. Like they're, they're delicious. They're delicious, exactly. You know, I, I, I don't as as much as I get pinned as the ketogenic diet guy. I don't, I don't think purely ketogenic diets are optimal for mass gain. Um, in the sense that the hormonal profile, insulin is low, you get more binding of testosterone to the binding globulin, uh, cortisol, like it's, it's not an optimally anabolic situation. At the same time, anything but the highest volume weight training does not use a lot of carbohydrates. Like you, Agreed. you know, endurance athletes need all the carbs. Strength power athletes found years ago that those typical dietary recommendations made them feel like shit. They get yeah groggy, they get lazy, higher protein makes them feel better. Bodybuilder, somewhere in the middle. You had mentioned the ketogenic diet not being effective for masking. My my opinion on that, um and I and I'm a little I'm a little poo poo on the whole ketogenic thing anyway. But my yeah. general feeling on that is just because of the metabolic processes of you know breaking down protein to, into fuel based yeah. energies, it just Absolutely. makes the, the the calorie burden so stupefying that yeah. it's just unworkable. Yeah, no, absolutely, I think, you know, I just, again, you don't have to have super, super, super high carbs, and I know some folks feel that they don't get as fat with, you know, a little bit lower carbs, it's about 1.5 gram per pound, like, not super ketogenic, but not super high, and the rest fat, more that Duchenne isochlorous diet. Um, what a great this idea. Interact, oh, God, and God, the meal replacement powder, ISO-3 was gorgeous. Yep. I, God, I wish they still I, made I, that. I'm, I'm going to confess, to this day, I make it in my kitchen. I literally use pudding and protein powder, and oh, I, ma- I manufacture the ISO-3 in my kitchen once a month. He was just, oh, God, he was so ahead of his time. He was 10 years too early for that to be it. Like, if he was doing that now, oh, God. Yeah, if but, idiot Dave Palumbo put his name on that, he'd sell a billion of them. Oh, Jesus, that stuff was so good. Um, yep. I think another thing to consider with dietary choices Right, well, let me go back. We've already talked a little bit about surplus. It does not need to be big. I usually recommend people start 10, maximum 20% over maintenance. We're talking a few hundred calories. Then they can adjust that based on, you know, monthly weight changes or or whatever. Some guys do start to jack up their energy expenditure. I talked about that in the fat loss thing. You get little ectomorphic guys, little skinny lean guys. Man, they gotta go like 25 calories a pound to gain weight. They get, and they're not hungry, they just won't eat. That's when you need that McCallum get big drink with all, you know. Those are the guys that can do 10,000 calories and they still won't gain weight. Um, but I think, you know, protein, 1.2 to 1.4 grams per pound of lean body mass for naturals. Now, I think for drug users, empirically, they, they do better with more. I think up to 2 grams per pound of lean body mass is completely uh, a good idea. I remember Lonnie Lowry did really turgid math and Pete Training Journal on that to kind of hit that same number. But again, we've got this 
increased rate of protein synthesis, this increased rate of growth happening faster and continuously, how can't they eat more protein? I mean, just at a biological level. Well, the, the argument, and, and I, I, I was involved in these studies in college, the argument is if uh, during the standard protein turnover or even during a, a catabolic uh, condition such as a, a weight training session, if those amino acids are not actually lost yeah. and they're immediately recycled back into the biological system, you could see a higher rate of protein retention without sure. a larger inflow of amino acids. And, yeah, and, and Lonnie talked about that as well, and I know you can kind of argue it back and forth and back that, and that's forth. That's one of those things that you very much on, a, on, on an abacus, you know, you, you slide the beads and you go, oh, yeah, it definitely works. But in a complicated system like biology, sure. it, it's probably a bit more suspicious. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I don't disagree. Um, you know, again, you're getting into a lot of complications. I think a lot of those, you know, athletes tend to just gravitate towards more and more and more. So, yeah, like, now, so I this can, is not. I could tell you, I could tell you from my own personal journal, um, the higher the dose of anabolics, the less dietary protein I need per kilogram. It might still okay. be more because my body weight is more. Sure. But I, yeah. I can gain muscle on a lower mil- uh, gram per kilogram ratio. At a higher anabolic level. Not a question. Gotcha. And I'm actually going to throw out an idea. I brought this up on my Facebook group and everyone was like, I was like, I'm going to make an argument that I'm not necessarily going to defend, but I think it'll make a fun discussion. And I'll, I'll get, uh, I'm going to, this is, this will sound asinine and completely counterintuitive. But okay, so we talked about protein. Carbs and fats are, you know, that's what you've got left to make that surplus. Now some of the early studies were like, once protein requirements are met, the biggest impactor on muscle growth is energy intake, right? So you need that energy to support the muscle growth processes, to support training, to support recovery. Like, kind of like the same way you can't just throw in more calories to gain more muscle. Just jacking up protein higher and higher and higher and higher and higher doesn't work. At some point, you've got enough protein, you just need to eat more energy, more calories. So, um, and and I, I had a weird study in the protein book that, Carbs and fats may actually work about the same in the long term, like short term maybe not, but it's kind of a, the body can draw energy from either technically. I think as long as you've got enough carbs to maintain a non-ketogenic hormonal state, you're fine. This ties into at least three factors. One is genetic insulin sensitivity. Again, Shane talked about this two decades ago. Insulin sensitivity, which just refers to how well or poorly a tissue responds to insulin, is impacted by a zillion factors. Um, diet, regular activity improves it, but there's a huge genetic component. Body fat, is fat, your insulin sensitivity goes down. However, within the same, two people of the same weight, same body fat percentage can vary in insulin sensitivity tenfold. <laughs> there's also a hormonal effect, right? Testosterone up to a point tends to improve insulin sensitivity, right? What do you guys on anabolics report? pumps that hurt. They're able to store so many carbs so effectively, right? They get that calorie partitioning, testosterone. So if you've got a guy with lower testosterone level, towards the low end, 300, 400, who's got genetically poor insulin sensitivity, eats a bunch of carbs and low fat, he will feel like shit. He will look like shit. He will look puffy. He will look waterlogged. He will not get a good pump. Like insulin, that, that's a, and, and Dan talked about that. He's like, yeah, look, top bodybuilders have used high-carb, low-fat diets. They do great on them. They've got fantastic insulin sensitivity. They've got the the anabolics playing a role. If you've got genetically lower insulin sensitivity and you can 
Like I said, if you eat a bunch of carbs and you feel like shit an hour later, you probably are a little bit insulin resistant. Those guys do better with moderate or lower carbs. We talked about moderate to higher fat, that isocaloric approach, where it's 30% protein, 30% carbs, 30% fat. That moderates the insulin response, keeps carbs high enough without being too high. The fat slows down gastric emptying. Like I said, he, he had this workout in the 90s before he passed away. So I think that's another player that people ignore in the diet wars is it, it interacts with, you know, if you're doing a high volume of training, you can get away with more carbs. If you're doing that hard gainer twice a week for two sets of five, you don't need a lot of carbs. It, it, it tends to scale with training volume, uh, but there's also those genetic hormonal factors that you kind of have to take into. Account. That's actually something that I, I really have been whirling in the back of my head as a a, a kind of a, a, an all-encompassing article slash opus is that, like, Arthur Jones always claimed that there was no special dietary requirements to, you know, to gain muscle. But I think an awful lot of that was predicated on the training style. When you're only training for 20 sure. minutes every third day, it Absolutely. probably doesn't require a lot of special nutrition because you're barely doing anything. Exactly. And, no, you know, and then the other side of the coin is, you know, Steve Mihalik, you know, believes you needed <laughs> to eat, you know, 19 buttered rolls before every workout. Well, sure. it's probably true if a workout's going to be six hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the old intensity or insanity. Those were some funny, man, those were some awesome articles. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, I think these are all factors that are going to tie into this. But by and large, other than bodybuilders just don't need that many carbs. Like I said, an endurance athlete doing four to six hours a day, they need 10 grams per kilo, you know, four and a half grams per pound every single day. Bodybuilders have typically gravitated towards what? Two or three grams a pound in the off-season. I'd say three grams if you're very insulin-sensitive, doing a highly insulin-sensitive, doing a lot of volume. Maybe one and a half to two if you're not. You might need even one gram per pound might be a little bit better, and you need to make up the difference with some dietary fat. Hmm. Well, it's so funny, you, you and I go about that entirely different, but we get to pretty much the same place. That's interesting. Sure. Yeah. I, so. I, I do it exactly the opposite. I'll take a person's body weight in kilograms and say, okay, you're 100 kilograms. Thou shalt eat 300 grams of protein per day. Thou shalt okay. eat 150 grams of fat per day. You can have as many carbs as you can want without getting fat. Yeah, which, yeah. And yeah, I'm sure you do end up in about the same place. Exactly. It winds up being about the same numbers, but I simply... Uh, I, I use a, a, a prescriptive method to determine the fat and protein sure. based on body weight, and then carbs are just, yeah. it, it's just energy. How, are you do, how I, active you are determines how many you get. And I've done exactly that thing, and it's like, set, uh, protein, calories get set first, protein always gets set second. I don't give a shit what else you're doing. If you don't get enough protein, it doesn't matter. Carbs, and, sometimes I'll set carbs first to make fat a difference, sometimes I'll set fat first to make, you know. There is a minimum requirement for dietary fats that a lot of people go too low on. So, yeah, depending, I'll, I'll do it very similarly. But well, One and a half grams of you know, reasonable quality, reasonably selected <laughs> fats, one and a half grams per kilogram, and that's it. It's just six. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that leaves the only modulator as, you know, as, dietary as, as sure. glucose, as, as dietary oh, carbohydrates. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then dietary fats, which, you know, Dan rightfully pointed out, you know, the lost, the lost child of nutrition, everybody went on super low fat in the 80s and they still got fat. Everybody went on super low carb in the 90s and they still got fat. It's like, it, it is 
people don't want to accept this. It's very much just calories. But you do need some dietary fats, right? You've got the essential fatty acids, the omega-3s, which everyone is deficient in, and a couple of studies recently have shown that it directly increases the anabolic effect of protein and carbs. It has some modulating effect on either the gene expression pathways. It might be through cell membrane fluidity, though I doubt that's really... Uh, I don't know how much of an effect that's having since it's very long term turnover. Ecosinoid impact is is measurable. Yeah, you've got all this stuff going on and nobody gets enough omega-3s. I recommend an intake of between 1.8 to 3 grams of total EPA DHA per day, right? Now, how many pills that will be depends on the potency of the pill. My pills have 180 and 120. They're 300 milligrams a piece, so between 6 and 10 of those pills. You've got high-potency pills. You need less. Flax oil is not a good substitute. It used to, they used to think so. It converts very poorly to DHA and EPA, which is the two real key players. People need to take a preformed fish oil every day, um, and that will help their growth. Uh, bigger guys can go three grams per pound. Smaller folks, you know, bigger. You look at 180-200, should go to the higher level, uh, three grams per day. Little guys can go one point. Like more won't hurt you up to a point. You take 10 grams per day. It can tone down immune system function. You spend some time in the bathroom. Uh, yeah, you, you get some lovely fishy burps, and uh, if you get cut, you will probably bleed a lot more because like, too much is not better. So, you know, you need some saturated fat. You can't avoid it. You will get some saturated fat from eating your, your meat protein sources. You know, there's some of that data that... You need some saturated fat for testosterone production. Really, if you look at those studies, the low and high fat studies, the variance in testosterone is just within, it's just farting around in the normal range. Like, 10% difference, fine, you went from 500 to 550, it still sucks. If I take you from 500 to 1,500, that makes a difference. So, like, I'm not convinced. Like, it doesn't hurt. Like, certainly. I will mention that for women, sufficient dietary fat is critical because, too low fat will mess up their immune system. I'm sorry, their menstrual cycle function, right? It will make them healthier, like it helps reduce breast cancer risk, but lean female dieters will lose their menstrual cycle sooner if they're eating too little dietary fat. What all women do. density is impacted as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's more like when their menstrual cycle function goes south, but too little dietary fat in, in women is far more damaging than in men. Men just don't see the consequences of that. Um, some numbers for total fat, you know, um, I think I use, it's about a gram per kilo. I think that's what you threw out there as an average number. is exactly what I use. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I've used depending somewhere between like 0.4 and 0.6 grams per pound, which is right in range. You're a little bit higher. Again, if your carbs are higher, keep fat a little bit lower. If your carbs are lower, fat needs a bit a little bit higher. But you know, you know why I... You know why I land on those numbers is because they're fairly idiot-proof. Three and one and a half are pretty yeah, easy no. to work with. I, Absolutely. I, it just, just rounds math to, to a number that, that numbnuts can, can work with. Fair enough. There's also the issue that if you get smaller numbers, especially on fat, people will always subconsciously try to eat a little bit less. And if you, if you tell them 0.6, they'll probably end up at 0.5. If you tell them... 0.75 grams per pound, which is that one and a half per kilo, they'll probably end up at 0.6. Like, it, it, it's, there, yeah, like you said, you're idiot-proofing it because people will always tend to kind of mess it up. So that, that's sort of the overall diet. Then we get into the meal frequency issue, right? 
Oh, I'm so God. glad you're tackling this. I really am. Yeah. And you've got, you know, you've got the extremes. You've got the musty every two hours. Okay, that is just factually bullshit. Flat out. A, an average-sized meal keeps you anabolic for somewhere between three and five hours, depending on the size. The idea that you must eat every two hours to maintain an anabolic state is bullshit. Flat out. The idea that it has any effect on metabolic rate is bullshit. Humans do not adjust the metabolic rate meal to meal. You no. can start for three days. Just your metabolism will probably go up a little bit, right? We're not mice. Yeah, just look at gastric emptying, and it solves that problem. Sure, right? For a mouse, one meal is huge. They live two years, right? One meal in a mouse is like three days in a human being. They're animals. There's a little prairie vole. Like if it doesn't, if it misses a meal, it'll die. But <laughs> if, if it's like forty grams, it has a huge energy expenditure, and they don't. Animals don't carry body fat for fuel. Humans do. Mice in the wild are very lean. They don't have a lot. They also don't store muscle glycogen. They have no energy source. Missing a meal for an animal, for a small animal, is hugely significant. Again, they live two years. Humans live 70 years. So divide, multiply those numbers by 35. One meal in a rat, mouse is like 35 meals in a human, roughly. It doesn't scale exactly that way. So you're looking at four days, right? So th- this idea that you need to eat every two hours is bullshit. There's been some work, right? The other end, you've got the intermittent fasting guy. The old Ori Hoffmeckler warrior diet, some of the new, you know, the one meal a day to be a warrior. Best name, best name in nutrition. Best name. Oh, Jesus. You'll love this, right? So there's two types of amino acids, L and D. Human bodies use the L form. Ori Hoffmeckler once wrote, the L and D stand for live and dead, and that's oh. why we use the L form. L and D stand for the organic chemical structure. Lovato rotatory and dextro rotatory. It has to do with how the organic chemistry molecules flash light through and how it rotates. But that was just amazing. Yep. Anyway, so at the other extreme, you've got the hardcore IFers, the one meal a day. At least Martin's approach is like three meals a day. There's been at least one paper that four meals a day versus one in terms of protein stimulated, got better muscle growth. I, I'm somewhere in the middle, and I expect, I expect you are too. Again, if you're, the meal's taking four to five hours to digest, well, do that math over 16 hours of being awake. That's like four total meals. Then you want to throw in a snack, we'll talk about post-workout, you know. Now, here's, here's the thing I threw out on my, my forum, um, that people, it's an argument that I want to make that I won't actually, I don't know if I believe it. So where did the whole six meal per thing come from? It came from bodybuilders using anabolics, who we have established have growth running 24-7. I am prepared to argue that for drug-using bodybuilders, meal frequency is more important than in naturals. Absolutely, because of the earlier mentioned insulin sensitivity. Well, and also because I think the drugs are causing growth every single hour. And this, of course... that could be that could be covered with simple volume. I really think that the the hormonal synergy is such okay. that the insulin component or lack thereof becomes far more uh, uh, measurable moment to moment. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, uh, my, my argument that everyone thought was absurd, and I think it's absurd too, was basically that all that daily nutrition was relatively 
more important for, for drug users than naturals. And, of course, the jerk response is, no way, I have to be way more meticulous because drugs, and drugs do cover up a lot of the problems, but I think there's a reason that a lot of those ideas came out of drug-using bodybuilders because they probably were, when you eat more food, actually your, your digestion speeds up. And yeah. if you've got high insulin sensitivity, you are clearing carbs more efficiently or more quickly. You know, they were also eating very low fat, very clean, and whatever. Also the insulin side of metabolism yeah. is much more burdensome on uh, B vitamins and micro minerals, yeah. which would then require you to eat more food to supply the sure. the you know the the riboflavin and and uh, sure. zinc, a lot of zinc and uh, um, um, chromium. Get, right. get burned up in that insulin process. And, and it's funny, I, I talked to, again, a buddy of mine, and he, he's of the opinion that a lot of these ideas did come out of the drugs. You know, that back Absolutely. in the day, and I think, I think Fred Hatfield said this, like bodybuilders found that if they stayed leaner year-round, they got better results. And I think Fred Hatfield offered that, right, more body fat means more conversion of testosterone to estrogen via aromatase. So it's like, for bodybuilders taking lots of aromatizable drugs, Staying in your work better. Absolutely. Not a question. We talked, we talked about that hardening phase back in the day, you know, sort of a pre-diet phase. That came out of that, too. That was when drug users either introduced the drugs or they switched from aromatizable to non-aromatizable. Like, it all kind of, even, there's even some belief that the old Soviet three on one week off, they were just synchronizing training with their drug use. There's no <laughs> all, doubt all that... There's no doubt that modern periodization came simply out of out of drug cycling. There's no doubt in my mind. Right, because if you look at it, if you look at the volume and intensification phase, volume when you're weeks out, you can take drugs and just recover from all of it. Well, guess what? A low volume intensification phase works fantastically when you're coming off the drugs and don't have the recovery because you need to pass the test. <laughs> like, exactly. oh, so I just so I think I think a lot of the dietary stuff. But anyway, going back to natural. I think an average of four meals per day plus probably a post-workout, which will be the next thing. And even to kind of spread your nutrients across the day, I don't think you have to get insane about it. Like, it doesn't yeah. have to be an exact division at every meal where you must get 37 points, you know, whatever. As long as you're within five or ten grams, you're fine. So post-workout, let's finish up there and then move to training. Uh, here... You know, a lot of the work early on was done in fasted people. There's now a general belief that if you've eaten within a few hours, you may not truly need a post-workout meal in the sense of it being required for the optimal anabolic window. I know that idea has kind of, kind of gone out the window. I'm of the opinion that it can't hurt. Um, may help recovery. You do need to refill muscle glycogen. I still think that's going to be most effectively done. You know, I don't find it may not be a, a deal breaker to not get it. I still think for people to get in the habit of doing it is not a bad idea. One really easy way, I think, to set up a diet, and this gets back to that whole surplus thing, right? So let's say that we're going to put most of the surplus on training days, and this has become kind of a, a lean bulking idea alternating between slightly higher and basically set up your maintenance diet. Whatever the numbers are, whatever the protein and carbon are fat, like we talked about. Well, on your training days, add a 300-calorie post-workout meal. Boom. Done. That's it. How simplistic and yet sensible. Right. Oh, that's all you have to do is just throw that in on training days, and you've got your surplus. You've got it at a time where your body can use the nutrients. You don't have to think about it too hard. So that, that's kind of where I... I'll, I'll play devil's advocate real quick, and I, I, keep, I keep trying not to 
to <laughs> to hold you up, but it's it's just so appropriate right there. I remember being exposed to Tom Platts and Fred Hatfield very early on, and when I say early huh? on, I was fourteen or fifteen, and they preached very adamantly against the idea of a post workout feeding because the argument was you had spent the whole hour or two hours of training to set up these metabolic conditions of low glycogen, low insulin, high growth hormone, high catecholamine, etc. Yeah. And you shouldn't you shouldn't disturb that until you absolutely have to. In in yeah. essence, let that condition you set run its course. Yeah, and that I mean I I think that that can possibly tie into, you know, there's a big push for a while of ice baths and anti-inflammatories, and we know now that inhibiting that inflammation actually hurts growth and strength gains. It hurts adaptation. You know, the, the reactive, that the, inflama- the inflammatory response certainly is important. I'm not convinced the, the little hormonal spikes mean a whole hell of a lot. I think it's a minor, a minor effect in the big scheme. Um, the whole GH testosterone pulse. I know there's at least one, you know, one paper showed I think the testosterone like went down, but I think it had to do with insulin. It was like the testosterone was getting cleared into the muscle or something. So I, I, I tend to, I, I see where that argument is going, but I think I'm going to sort of stand on me. Well, let me ask you this. How long were they recommending to wait? An hour? Um, two uh, hours? Yeah, yeah, an hour and a half, two hours sort of thing. Yeah. Like I said, at that point you're starting to get into nighttime meals, depending on when you train. I think I'm, I think I'm more inclined to go with having one within a fairly reasonable, mainly just to get that surplus. But yeah, okay. If you ever experimented with that, it just, it just seemed that, to dovetail to what you were saying so well. Yeah, okay. Um, have you, you know, have you ever experimented with that in a, a practical sense? If one works better than the other, I am incredibly pragmatic personally. Um, you know, and I've been very, very big and strong in my life. Uh, yeah. I don't really believe it matters when you eat, uh, based yeah. on, di- you know, gastric clearing and all that stuff. Sure. I don't think, I don't think there's ever a moment in a day when I'm truly at a deficit of anything. Sure. It just doesn't seem to matter. I do, I do think one time, like, you know, you see people who are working, like if they eat lunch at one, aren't training till six, I think you are getting the situation that you may, you know, that previous meal has kind of been emptied and sometimes maybe putting, a lot of it's very context dependent. I wrote chapters on this in the protein book and I was a little up my own ass with getting very involved in pre and during and post and all that kind of shit. But I suspect most people's workouts are so, as you said, relatively low carbohydrate intensive. They're they're so low glycotic that I, I I don't think it matters. Yeah, I, you know, and again, I think it depends, you know, population you're talking about. General public, eh, although certainly, you know, they've done, a, especially older folks, and I know that's not really your audience, but that is a completely different system. As we get older, our muscles become resistant to the anabolic effects of protein, and that is the place for, like, post-workout whey protein is night and day. But that's yeah, when you're, they've like, shown leucine impacts that's when you're in your 60s and shit. But, like, you know, so, yeah, we're kind of saying the same thing, you know. Um, I think people will continue to do it, and and I just like it because it's just easy. Here, post workout, 300 calories. There's your surplus. Be done. Oh, um, I'm, I'm a huge believer in just. I'm a huge, huge believer yeah. in just idiot proofing things. If, oh, that, no, if that makes the system work, go with it. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to. I find a lot of people who write about this forget that. 
And I do. A lot of my stuff is fairly technical, but I, I do try to tone it down. It's very easy to go, well, you know, if you're very well-versed and intelligent, you can make these. Like, most people don't want to think about this that hard. They want simple recommendations, do this, do that. So, yeah, breaking it down to work a whole lot better. Okay, let's, let's move to training, um, which is really, you know, the old joke, 80% of bodybuilding is nutrition. Eh, maybe. Uh, training is critically as important. And let's face it, a lot of how people train, a lot of what's recommended that people train is ridiculous. Um, I remember hearing for years, we don't even, we don't even know what makes muscle grow. And here's the thing. That's total bullshit. We've known since the 70s what makes muscle grow. At a fundamental level. Before that even, maybe. Yeah, but you know, fine, we're only now elucidating all these molecular pathways with mTOR and AKT and AMPK and all that stuff, none of which changes anything really practically. Goldspink wrote this paper in like 77, The Mechanism of Work-Induced Hypertrophy. And what they, and it was animal stuff, but it applies. They, they, what they found was the key stimulus for growth. Progressive tension overload. That's it. You must, as a natural, now we're talking about, drugs again change the equation. However, as a natural, if you are not getting stronger over time, you are not getting bigger. The end. Like, it's really, if you look at big natural Even bodybuilders. Arthur Jones and company were on that page in the late 60s, early sure. 70s. Yeah. And it's just that it's just that simple. There's no reason I don't care how much volume you do, I don't care how frequently you train, if you're not getting stronger over time, you are not and again, I'm not saying workout to workout, week to week, like whatever. If you're not stronger at the end of this year than you were at the beginning, you're not gonna be bigger. Period. Absolutely. Um how you get there, there's other variables of course, there's better and worse ways. But you look at big natural bodybuilders, they're always strong as shit. Always. You yep. you do not see guys that are weak. They're not lifting big weights, relatively speaking. Now, one thing that's worth addressing uh, is now when I'm not when I'm saying to be stronger, I don't mean like singles and doubles. I don't mean necessarily powerlifting. I don't mean necessarily that. Uh, Dante Trudell, who you probably know, the guy who did dog craft training. Yeah, one um, for me in DC. Yeah, great guy. I don't know. Do I agree with everything he says? No. Neither here nor there. I agree with more of what he says than I doubt. Yeah, that's fair. The idea is not how strong you are, right? People have different mechanics, different ligament tie-ins. I have frequently been smaller than guys in my gym and moved more weight because of my levers. It is getting stronger than you are now, right? You can have a guy that can bench 300 and a guy that can bench 350, and the 350 guy may be smaller. We're not comparing person to person. But what Dante said was, key to growth is getting stronger in a moderate repetition range, which he defined as 6 to 12. And I think that sums it up more succinctly than anything I could ever say. He's getting stronger yeah, I think I would moderate range down even tighter. I think I would just say at five reps. I, I think yeah, I, would, even, I would hone it to that, that level. Yeah, and, you know, and I wrote an article recently. There's been a lot of, of interesting stuff. They're like, oh, seven sets of three made you people grow as well as three sets of ten. Right, and it took three times as long and people got hurt. Oh, doing sets of 30 repetitions at 30% makes you grow just as well. Right, and you throw up. Right, practically the hypertrophy range is 5 to 12, maybe 5 to 15. Lower than that, you're not getting the metabolic stress. You're not too hard to get the volume. Above that, there's too much metabolic stress. You're very limited by lactic acid. You're not stressing the tensile components. Like, there's a happy... From a practical, maybe not a scientific standpoint, but a practical standpoint. Absolutely. But I think I think Dante really summed it up: is if you go from today benching, 
135 for five, and a year from now you're benching 225 for five, you will be bigger. Yep. And, and Arthur Jones said that exact same thing, you know, in yes. the late 60s, early 70s, only through, you know, Nautilus speak, but he said exactly the same thing. Sure. Right. And it's, yes, and he was completely spot on. And actually here, just, I, I know you're aware of this, it's a random tangent, right? Now high intensity training, what, what he is often claimed to have created, has gotten so far up its ass with seeing how little volume, how infrequently they can do this. You actually look at Arthur's, like, Nautilus Bolton number one. I own it. Absolutely. The volume was very, like, his big reaction that people missed, it wasn't to do as little as possible. It was as little as needed, right? He was reacting to the 20 seconds of the day. And if you look at it, like, he was typically training full body three times a week. He was doing three to four sets per muscle group, like nine to 12 sets per week. It wasn't one set every fortnight, but that's where that ideology has gotten. Yeah. Um, his, you know, and I think he cut that back a little bit as he went, but by and large, his early volumes were very, very reasonable for naturals, and I guess that's the next topic. How I much agree. Volume, I agree with your statement entirely, actually. Yeah. I really how, how much volume do you need? How many sets, how many reps, how much work do you need to do? Because too little is invariably suboptimal. Too much is suboptimal. There, there's a, a thing, you know, it's the, you know, the inverted U-shaped curve. Too little is bad. Too much is bad. There's a happy middle ground. It's true for almost everything you can discuss. Drugs, well, testosterone more, or anabolics more is better, but everything else is kind of an inverted U-shape. So, spend some work on this. Guy named Warnbone wrote this really turgid review paper looking at all these different research studies. And he found that a volume of about 40 to 70 repetitions per workout per muscle group gave about the optimal results in terms of, you know, best response for for what was done. Less work did generate some growth, but it was much smaller. More work didn't really generate any more growth, right? And it's like the calorie thing. You can only stimulate to such a degree. After that, and Dante's made this point, more work does not stimulate more growth, but cuts into your recovery. Okay, so let's map out 40 to 70 sets. Right. The low end, four sets of 10. Right, that's 40 reps. If you're doing five, it'd be eight sets of five, which is a lot of low rep work. At 70 reps, you're looking at, you know, seven sets of 10, eight sets, eight to nine sets of eight per muscle group, and I think it's entertaining that what did Lee Haney used to recommend? That eight sets per muscle group. Emulate, don't I just find that an interesting anecdote? You look at a lot of recommendations, it, it ends up in that. Well, the, cla- the classic East German 10 sets of 10 puts you, sure. you know, just, it, just on the high side of that. It is, and it's also a little bit lower intensity. And I'm talking, if you're doing sets of eight, you're at about 80% of one RM. So you're going a little bit higher intensity, and there's, there's some variation on that. I always felt the German volume training was a little bit more nutrient storage than than growth per se, but, you know, yes. Funny you say that, because I actually had a different thought entirely. I always thought okay. it was more neurological. It was more learning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's you know that reps of something, God damn it, you're going to be good at it when you're done. Sure. But, but, you know, the question is, is being, you know, I remember Duchesne actually being, thinking that was the wrong way to go. He's like, we've got strength coaches, we need size coaches. And this is a place I think he was not quite up on the research, because he was like all multiple sets of the same exercise you're doing is neural gains. The thing is, neural gains end very quickly. Once you're good at an exercise, doing four sets of eight on bench, you're not predominantly training neural effects because you're already good at it. You know, but he recommended at one point that maybe doing one set of eight different exercises might be better for growth. 
pick one half of the other. Um, you know, I think for most people, you know, if you're a beginner, whatever, four to six sets, you know, what's the old beginner workout? Three sets of ten, bump it up after six months. At the advanced level, you might need more than that. The, the studies one of them looked at was intermediate, and I the advanced guys arguably may need a little bit more work, but I think most guys go crazy, and a lot of it is this gets into exercise selection. Most guys do too many goddamn exercises that are the same thing. Yep. Watch any gym. Flat bench barbell press, flat bench dumbbell press, flat bench machine press, flat fly, incline barbell press, incline dumbbell press, incline machine, incline. Okay, dude, those are all the same exercise. Do, unless you're doing one set of each, that's, and they do four sets of each. He just did 32 sets per chest. Even drugs won't let you recover from that, for God's sake. Um, I think a lot of people make ridiculous choices in exercise selection with too much overlap. I think, actually, believe it or not, one of the best approaches to exercise selection was the old positions of flexion and Iron Man. <laughs> believe that it or not. intriguing stuff. I know exactly what you're you referring know, to. And, and, and what, what, what Steve Holman recommended was he needed one, one exercise that was hardest at mid-range. Those are always your compound exercises. Middle of the bench, middle of the squat. Then you needed one that was most the greatest tension at uh, peak contraction, leg extension, table crossover, uh, maybe a spider curl for biceps. And you needed one that was maximal tension at the stretch position. Fist squats, which destroy people's knees. Um, a properly done fly tends to have a lot of tension at the bottom. Like, if you're doing mainly maybe three exercises per month or three different exercises per muscle group for, for variable sets, right, you might do, say you're doing eight sets, you might do three sets of bench, three sets of flies, two sets of crossover. Leaves. Get out of the gym. That's, you've stimulated as much, you know, or you can do flat bench, maybe an incline movement, maybe do flat one day, incline the second chest day. Like, there are muscles that need, that have different angles. Right, biceps do one thing. Well, whatever. They flex the elbow. Fine, they supinate and all that stuff. Remember Arthur said he wanted to build a machine that started you in full shoulder flexion with your arm externally rotated and come through and peak. Like, it was impossible to build, but if you want to train the muscle anatomically through the full range. Um, biceps and triceps are not complicated muscles. The back is a very complicated muscle. The back may need multiple days. To get mid back, lat, lower back, there is overlap, but you're getting. Reminds me, there, reminds you know. me of the old, uh, the forgotten bodybuilder Ben Poda. I don't know if you remember him. He was an absolute nope. animal, crazy, stone crazy. He went on to be Chuck Norris's bodyguard. Gives you an idea. Really? Okay. Gives you an idea where that dude's psyche was, and uh, his approach to training back. Actually, I remember it well. He would use every handle in the gym on the uh-huh. cable row. He would do cable rows with wide, close, narrow, single hand, double hand, okay. rope. Everything in the gym, he would do cable rows. Three days okay. later, he would come back and do the same process. Wow. Yeah, and it's, you know, as much as we like to crap on anecdotal bro science, for years, bodybuilders, you had thickness movements, which was mid-back. You had width movements, which was last. Well, there's some, there's some truth to that. Um, I just loved the incredible uh, succinctness. It's just... I'm just going to divide yeah. this in the middle. <laughs> that's day one. That's day two. It's done. Yeah, and you know, and you can, and you, or you can do a little bit of overlap. Like you can do a day that's mostly mid back with a couple sets for laps, and the next day do mainly laps. I mean, there there is overlap of all these muscles, right? If you do an undergrip, narrow, 
table row, you're getting a lot of lat on that. You're getting a lot of mid-back. Now, if you flare the elbows with an overhand grip, pull to the chest, you're getting predominantly mid-back without a lot of lat. So you can get overlap. This depends on how you want to go about it. Um, but, but I do think with exercise, you know, I would say chest, two to three, you need a flat chest. You probably need an up movement. You can do a couple different things. Back probably needs three or four exercises. Most guys, you know, how many trammage traps do you need? Low back almost goes with lower body. Biceps, dude, two exercises is plenty. Like, for real, you don't need every angle. Triceps, you need an extension, pull, something with the, the elbow and extension um, to get triceps I long head. I happen to believe that arms don't even need to be trained. Now, granted, I'm, I've been a lifelong strength athlete, and granted, I've taken a bunch of drugs in my life, but I'm five foot five. 12% body fat, I have 19-inch arms, and I haven't done a set of arms since 1990. Okay, let me address that, because I think it depends, right? I think if you've got, got arms that are a certain, uh, le- if you've got certain leverages, and if you're shorter, let's face it, you're probably generally shorter, right? I, I want oh, to absolutely. Know- the, the, the body is actually a fractal system if you actually look at how it scales, which I think is part of why foot size and dong size are up. You know, there, there's a relationship to that, the, the, the peripheral stuff. Now, if yeah. you're a lanky, long arm, if you're a monkey-armed, taller guy, usually your triceps and biceps will fail so hard on pushing and pulling movements that I don't, I do think they will need direct work. I think this is a place where there's such enormous variability, right? It's why I don't like the typical, what, you know, what, somebody just emailed me a question, what are the three best exercises? Well, there aren't, right? What's the typical answer? Squat, deadlift, bench. Oh, fuck you. This is myopic macho bullshit. If you were a tall guy with long legs and a long torso, back squats are a losing battle for you because you're training your low back. Your low yeah. back will give out before your legs. You will have a strong back and a shitty leg. Do a, do a machine line press. I know that's heresy, but guess what? It's right. Like, fine, if you're a power lifter, you have to do those movements. If you're a Olympic lifter, you have to do those movements. If you're a bodybuilder, find the best exercise you can physically, progressively, mechanically fit your body. Another great series before he went off the rails, Scott Abel's uh, Innovation Training, where he talked about that. If you've got an exercise that overemphasizes the wrong muscle, because that muscle is better neurologically. In some cases, a cable row is not your best back exercise if your arms take over. Maybe a reverse pec deck with, you know, or a shrug back for you might be better. For someone else, big heavy compound. I mean, I remember Tom Platt saying, I remember Tom Platt saying, he says, I can't do a goddamn cable row. He says, it becomes a leg exercise. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, bodybuilding is not a performance sport. Nobody gives a shit how much Generally, you know, they don't care how much you can table row. They care about your muscular. So you have to talk things out. And again, progressive tension overload. If you can't add weight to an exercise safely because you're not built for it, you're not going to grow. I guarantee you that a guy that can't add weight to squats will grow less than a guy that can't add weight to leg presses. Period. Because one guy's getting progressive tension. Invariably, my experience is people who people who advocate a certain exercise are built for it. Yep. People who say that exercise sucks either don't know how to do it or not built for it. Because you will find one guy's bench is the best exercise for pecs. Yeah, you're mechanically built to do it. Yeah, bench is the worst exercise for pecs. Yeah, you're mechanically not built to do it. So absolutely. a lot of it, if you're shorter with arm, absolutely you don't need a lot of arm work. 
if you are taller with lanky arms or, or certain levers. And these guys, let's face it, if you're 6'2 with lanky arms, go run. You're going to suck yeah, you're, you're, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong pool to begin with. You're in the wrong sport. You're going to suck at this. Um, yeah. There's a certain... So anyway, but I think that depends very... I'm really... I mean, guys love to train arms. 20, 30 sets. There's also the overlap issue. What do you guys do? And that's 20 sets for chest. Well... That's at least 10 sets for triceps, and then 20 more sets for triceps. Dude, you just did 30 sets for triceps. Are you out of your mind? Whenever you get those guys to cut back to just a handful of sets of arms after their triceps work, they blow up, and they're mind-blown that less work is more effective. So anyway, so that's kind of exercise selection. Um, frequency. This is the big <laughs> argument. Right? Bodybuilders hit it one time a week. That came out of drug training. I'm sorry. When you've got drugs stimulating growth, 24, 24, 7, 365, you can get away with that. Now, for most people, I prefer medium frequency. Twice a week, once every five days. You find a lot of guys that got big doing that. Some guys like to do that full body free. There's a, there's a push on higher frequency now. Yes. I think for most people, it's a losing battle. I think I'm of the opinion that there seems to be a minimum volume and intensity per workout that you need, and if you're trying to train 12 times a week on the same muscle group, you're only doing like two sets of workout. I don't think that's enough, although you might remember the, the great old Bulgarian we last. Beyond belief, that's right. Yeah, I've got it on yeah. my shelf. Um, you know, that depends. It depends on a lot of things. You know, there has been, you know, for a while I really didn't like the one time a week thing. However, recent studies showed that as long as you did enough volume hard, that was the key. They either did three sets three times a week or nine sets one time a week. But they were supervised. The guys were pushing them hard, harder than they'd ever been pushed, and they did grow the same, at least over the short term. This has led to this idea volume is the only important factor. Oh, bullshit. You need as much volume as you want at a piss-ass intensity, and you will not grow. You can train as high frequency as you want with insufficient volume and intensity. You want. Like, this is a triangle that interacts. But, but my does. my personal experience with dealing with athletes is, with the high frequency, you can actually have too much intensity and the whole thing yeah. unravels quickly. Oh, absolutely. I see people trying to go, ah, let's apply Bulgarian training to this and that and the other. Look, these guys take 10 years to build up to this. They take drugs, and most guys get broken anyway, right? So I've read in recent Milo, for every world champion the Bulgarians produce, 60 guys got injured. Yeah. If you jump into squatting every day without working at 60% intensity, what your connective tissue will blow up. You will get knee problems. This stuff bugs the shit out. If you're going twice a week and one out a third day, great. Do it light. Go 60% for two months. Then you can go medium. Do that for four months. Then you can add a fourth day. Like, just years and people get broken off. Now, I think part of the reason, because observationally in the gym, most guys that do that once a week, bomb and blast, don't really grow, but I'm now of the opinion that it's because they're not adding weight to the bar, they're focusing only on one, they're just pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping, and they're doing too much volume per day, and that's the problem. At the same time, a lot of people find that if they train and exercise once a week, they almost forget how to do it. Yep. I'm that way. If I squat once a week, the next week, I'm relearning the exercise. Even if I do light front squats a second day, that or even deadlifts, that maintains my personal neural path. And I've been trained for years, and I'm still like that. Now, you know, there's also some very significant studies that suggest that te- uh, high androgen loads, 
i.e. taking anabolic steroids, radically improves motor learning, which oh, yeah. buffers yeah. that very issue you're talking about. Sure, I can believe that. Also, you know, bodybuilders have never, again, been, they're not performance athletes. Their goal, you know, if you're going in every day and not really trying, and they all, bodybuilders also frequently did a lot of isolation work. You know, I won't forget how to leg press in a week, but I will lose my squat pattern. But a lot of it depends on your exercise choice and individual stuff. I think for most people, I prefer a medium frequency, twice a week, roughly once every five days if you're an old part with poor recovery. Now, that way you can hit every muscle, whatever, upper, lower, chest, shoulders, tricep, legs, and back, however you want to split it. Um, with a moderate amount of volume, you know. So if you're doing muscle group twice a week, looking at four to eight sets per muscle group. If you do that, you can also set up an A workout and a B workout. Have your flat chest day, your upper chest day. Have your back fitness day, your back width day. You know, have a quad dominant day, a hamstring, whatever it is. If you train once a week, double that, right? So you go from four to eight sets to eight to 16 sets. But that's enough. And that's a lot of work for a muscle group. But if it's once a week, I think if you're being progressive, if you're working intensely, that can work. I don't think it's my preference, but I know a lot of guys get away with it. Some really great strength athletes got away with that. I mean, you look back at guys, um, Ernie France, a lot of guys got away with a one, you know, one day a week and got r- r- absurdly strong. Well, and I think, I think there's a couple things that, you know, it used to be claimed, oh, Ed Cohn trains every muscle group once, every, no, he trains every exercise once a week. Squats yeah. one day and deadlifts another day, that's a lot of overlap. He's training his lower body twice a week. He benched one day, he light benched the second day. He wasn't strictly doing bodybuilder training. A lot of them, and, and there has been a trend because powerlifting has a big neural factor. Absolutely. And there's a big push in more frequency because it gives you more practice. So I think that the pendulum is swinging back now towards working, training the movements a little bit more. But again, you've got to work up to this, and that's what guys forget. One point I wanted to make, right, it always seemed like, you know, there's been this big debate, oh, are powerlifters or bodybuilders more muscular? Hmm. And it always seemed, right, which we're not going to get into because that's a whole different can of worms, but it always seems to me that in, in the aggregate, the natural powerlifter grew better than the average natural bodybuilder. But here's why that is. Powerlifting has... At its core, progression. Yep. The the end game of powerlifting is to get stronger over time. Powerlifters and and people are like, well, powerlifting proves you can get big with low reps. No, because every powerlifter ever does higher volume assistance work. They do yep. bodybuilding work after the power. They squat and then they do specifically they do it tiered. They're very heavy in their core yes. movements and then very light in their accessory yeah. movements. Even the, the Chinese male Olympic lifting team is, is kind of opening some eyes. So, like, these guys are jacked. Olympic lifting is great. No, you know what? They actually do bodybuilding exercises after their yep. primary work. They, his, his, you know, his coach's recommendations are eight to ten sets of two muscle groups or until you get bored. So, yep. about that same volume, eight sets of eight. There you go. Um, these are guys that are drugged anyway. But I think, I think when bodybuilders start focusing on that progressive adding weight over time, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, if you're doing four sets of ten, that fourth set, you can do two or three more reps, plus more weight on the bar until you can do that again. So I think I think that, you know, so, so kind of recapping. Primary factor of growth, progressive tension overload. You must get stronger over time. Volume, moderate, not too low, not too high. Maybe four, six to eight sets once a week. Double that if you're training once, you know, sorry, 
six to eight sets twice a week per muscle group, or double that if you're training once a week. Uh, exercise selection, two to three for chest, back, legs, maybe quads and hamstrings, a little bit different angles. Shoulders get complicated because side delt, they do different things. You know, does rear delt go with back? Does it go with shoulders? I don't know. Depends. Um, even there's a place. Everyone's like, oh, heavy back work will build your rear delts. Bullshit. I've seen so many guys with flat rear delts that can run the world. Your rear delts are not firing well. You need to do isolation work. Period. Not even debatable. Um, and once you do that, they will fire better during compound work because you have gotten that innervation effect that, that uh, Scott Abel wrote about. Uh, so that's frequency. Intensity, it needs to be challenging. I don't think guys, you know, guys intensity or death going to failure every set. I don't think that's ideal. But if you're not working within one, two, three reps of limit, it's not heavy enough. Again, I think in the long term, failure tends to burn people out. The whole, you must, you know, 20 sets, every set to failure. You can't even do that. You can't. That, that's all muscle magazine bullshit. Um, it can't be done. Uh, and for the average person, I think it burns them out neurologically. So use failure, but use it sparingly. Frequency, intensity, volume, add weight. Don't be ridiculous with your exercise choices. Probably failure on the last set of every exercise. Right. And, and that's a very good way to gauge when you should go up, right? So if you're doing four, let's say you're doing four sets of ten. You, you get your sets, first three, then the last one you take the failure. Okay, if you get 13 reps, add weight. That, that's a really good way to determine when it's time to add weight. So absolutely. I completely concur. That's, that's, I've even probably spoken those very words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's finish up, I guess, you know, the only really last, well, maybe we should talk briefly, how do anabolics affect training? Because you can <laughs> find guys on drugs that just piss around, that just pump it up and use like, again, I think all of that focus on the squeeze and the pump and the blood and all that crap, that came out of drug-fueled training. Absolutely. It doesn't work for, is there a time to do that? Sure. Natural joints wear out, right? You probably saw this story. Ronnie Coleman, who's trained heavy his whole life, right? He squatted 800 for two or whatever. He's broken. Yeah. He's physically He's broken. Going heavy all the time, and that's, okay, sorry, I left the topic out about training. you got to cycle your training, right? The hard gainer guys go way too long, right? They, they train six months adding weight. By the time they're adding half a piece of gum to the bar every week, like, that's too long. To change your exercises every week, you never make, you can't track the game. Shock the system? No. I'm fall right in the middle. Take a couple weeks, gradual buildup, go hard for six, maybe eight, back off, maybe pick some new exercises, do it again. And Dante, he's cruise glass, same thing. It's a little bit different, but I think eight, ten, maybe twelve week cycle if you're really recovering well before you need to take a break. Every elite yeah. athlete periodizes their training. How many bodies are you? a ten and two guy. I think it's because it makes an even perfect four months. You go you ten weeks yeah. straight up, two Fair weeks enough. of reset, to ten weeks straight up. Bingo! It's it, it's truly idiot proof. Um, I've actually always felt that um, I think part of the reason guys get that uh, oh, whenever I switch the exercises, you know, I, I well, number one, whenever you switch exercises, it's great for three weeks. You just get stronger every week, right? It's neural. That, that yeah, was just you're trick. learning to do the damn thing, right? Acquiring skills. That's a trick that Pollock when you like I trained in my uh, well, athletes. Louis Simmons is yet to understand that. Him and his ridiculous right. yeah. you know, rotating things in his like you're just constantly in a state of learning. You're not a, you're not right. actually making any progress. 
you think you're making great strength, you know, oh, I gained 20 pounds in three weeks. Right, it's the same 20 pounds over and over and over again. You're not actually making progress. Yeah, you, know, you look at Ed Cohn, 12 to 16 week cycle base. They pilots to start very submaximal to build up. Um, you you need to get some gaining momentum. You need to get that that. I, I think there's also those like ah, oh, but when I shock my when I when I switch my exercises, I grow. Right. You know why? You have to train submaximally for two weeks. And it's like we talked. It's like we talked. It's not for the reason you think. It's because you finally took a deload, like you should have been doing anyway. Yep. There's something I jokingly wrote about on my website. Well, there's the long-term delayed fat loss effect, right? That weird effect where, like, when you stop dieting, you lean out for two weeks. There's a growth effect, too. You train your balls off for eight weeks and then take two lighter weeks, you'll continue to grow. And I don't know if it's glycogen, water, if it, you know, there's that whole fatigue fitness theory and and athletic training, but it works. Something happens where the two weeks easier that's when you see the spurt and growth frequently. Maybe it's just taking the intensity load, letting the body recover, letting whatever support system has to. Um, so, yeah, so I think that that's the other aspect of this. So whether it's 2 and 8 or, like, actually, I think 10 and 2 makes sense from a practical programming. It's the same reason we tend to program training along a weekly schedule. it works schedule. nicely into a calendar, and even dumb people can understand it. It's just very very, very useful to me. Sure. Um, I also think, kind of adding to that, and this gets into like that joint injury thing, I think that's a good time to do some, you know, light pump or high rep training. It gives the connected tissue a break. It gives the mind a break. You can move some blood through there. There's some yeah. work for a while that lactic acid might help with connected tissue healing. Like, there was like, but if I take two weeks off, I'll lose all my, no, you won't lose all your muscles. You'll, you'll be fine. And even if you yep. do backslide a little bit, that comes back quickly and you grow better. It's like dieting when you take two weeks, eat, you know, to to raise calories. Um, so that I think that's a good time to to throw in a little bit of pump work and move some blood and just give your joint. You know, the number of guys I see in women, women are on the stairmaster with both knees sports sleeves. Guys are benching with their elbows wrapped and they hurt all the time. And dude, you, you gotta you gotta knock this off. Wow, what a whirlwind! That's huge. And it's did, did you ironic. Touch on supplements. I mean, it'll take ten minutes. No, absolutely. Have, yeah, you know, knock, knock, knock out supplements. That, that's what the, you know. That's ninety-five percent of people's questions, and it's always funny. It's the guys that don't have any aspect of their training and nutrition dialed. The supplements, <laughs> just like with dieting. It's, again, my buddy Eric wrote this really good book, and it's kind of a it's a it's a hierarchy of importance, right? Showing up is the first step. If you don't show up, you're not going to gain. Progression is second. Frequency, volume, intensity for training, and then, you know, stuff like rep tempo and, and time under tension, that's all very, that's like eight down the road. Don't worry about that shit so you get the rest of it right. And when it comes to diet, you got to get total calories, enough protein, carbs, fats, meal frequency. Until you've got that, the supplements just don't matter. So we talked about creatine. Creatine works, period. It's got 80,000 studies on it. None say it, it hurts. Some say no effect. That's the only people it hurts is maybe endurance athletes because the weight gain slows them down. Um, strength power athletes, weight class athletes have to worry about making weight. But you just drop the creatine a week out. Um, creatine works. It, there's an indirect effect through the water, like we talked about. could have an effect. It allows you to couple, get a couple more repetitions per set. Make some people stronger. Heavier weights for more reps equals growth. Uh, it works. There's, there's no argument about that. You know, for a while... Usage, originally it was 20 grams per day for five days. 
I fondly remember doing that with an early granular creatine. I lost 10 pounds because I was too busy shitting my brains out. The new micronized form, a lot easier on the body. Uh, you don't actually need to load. Five, for a five grams a day in your protein drink or whatever, you will load. It'll just take you about a month and then just take that every day. Which is actually uh, far more uh, acceptable to the physiology. It's far more u- usable. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. much easier ride. And creatine does, like, a billion other good things. There's even, a, like, they're looking at it for, like, brain function and older people. It may help with depression. Like, there's literally nothing that the creatine supplement. And monohydrate is fine. All those other forms, ethyl, ester, and all that chewies and all that crap. Just get basic creatine monohydrate as cheap as you can. For people with, with uh, stomachs that are sensitive, the micronized can work, but... They were just trying to reinvent the wheel for a decade because creatine monohydrate was too cheap to make them any money. So creatine works. Uh, beta alanine was one that became popular. Beta alanine is the precursor to one of the buffers in muscle, the buffers acidosis. It does tend to work and it actually with creatine works more effectively. Creatine helps the first handful of reps. Beta alanine helps you get, you get into that 10, 12, 15 repetition range. Combination works better. Dosing is something like, Four and a half grams a day, it's like in that range. Uh, it can cause that histamine flush, that nice tingly red sensation that people hate. Uh, that works. Um, the fish oils we talked about, whether those are a supplement or a food, depends on how you want to look at it. I, I am a firm believer that if it has a calorie, it's a food. So that's where they go. Well, I agree. Duchesne once made the great point, which is that bodybuilders will not eat fat. They will take a fat supplement. And I thought, the man was a genius. He was just like, change the semantics, and they'll take it. Yeah. It was a, yeah. But, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's technically a food or should be considered such. You know, I believe a basic multivitamin won't hurt. It's not magic. A lot of people, you know, their diets aren't great. It's just nutritional insurance. Uh, if you don't eat a lot of dairy, calcium, critical for women. Women end up with some really weird nutritional deficiencies because a lot of them don't like red meat. They end up iron and zinc deficient. Yeah. Dairy has this weird reputation in bodybuilding. So the calcium deficient, all this adds up to some really, really bad stuff for their hormonal function and bone density. Great. So those can be useful. Um, zinc and magnesium at bedtime helps people sleep. You know, there's a handful of others. Uh, I'm not sure why phosphatidyl... Zinc is... Okay. Uh, very important in the binding of androgens to receptors, and if you are okay. zinc deficient, you can have uh, inadequate binding at the at the target tissue. Okay. Oh yes, zinc is possibly the most understated and underrated anabolic supplement one can take, and it's not an anabolic in its own right. It just facilitates, but it's yeah. really important. Well, here's a data uh, point: if any women that are listening to this, this will get them taking zinc. There's a, a there's a case study with two female athletes who were zinc deficient, and they gave them it's like it's only like 25 milligrams of a basic zinc supplement a day. Within two months, as they were fixed their zinc status, their metabolic rate went up by like 400 calories a day. Like zinc deficiency wow. tanks. It was ridiculous. Um, and they've done some other studies in men where they zinc deplete them and metabolic rate goes down. Yeah, and, um, yeah, um, I mean, it's involved in testosterone production and a lot of athletes are deficient. And you know, <clears throat> red meat is one of the best sources. I'm of the opinion that everyone, but especially women, should eat red meat. It can be lean several times. The, the amount of nutrients that are in there is absurd. Absolutely. Um, so. Strange coincidence that zinc, creatine, all these really important things to building muscle are all found in muscle. That's really weird. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, interesting, that. Um, 
one thing I guess we should touch on protein powders. You know the the way oh, casein wars, not in detail. I'll, I'll only say oh, that you know dairy proteins are amazing. Like dairy proteins, which includes whey protein, casein, milk protein isolate, which is a combination, yogurt, milk, like any dairy food. Dairy proteins are some of the highest quality proteins. They've got one of the highest leucine contents. And whenever they've done a comparison between milk proteins and anything else from muscle growth, milk proteins win. Dairy proteins are amazing. And, you know, whey is fast-acting. Casein is very slow, a little bit chalky. MPI is a nice mix. Um, doesn't seem to be any huge long-term difference in terms of muscle growth. Whey is just easy. You know, casein requires a shaker bottle. Not everyone likes the texture. I like milk protein isolate. You put whey protein and some yogurt or milk to kind of get the best of all worlds. But, you know, pea protein, most of the vegetarian protein stuff. Yeah. I, I remember the old Supra that you could bake with. That was fantastic. I used to make protein pancakes. They don't make it anymore. Uh, pea protein is yeah, gross. A- Hemp protein is disgusting. It leaves this, this green sludge on the bottom of the shaker bottle. That stuff's vile. Uh, hydrolyzed proteins make you want to throw up because of the free form amino acids. Like, honestly, just stick with whey. <laughs> stick with whey and casein. Uh, it's relatively cheap, good protein source. Um, and if you look at the, the data, and this is uh, something I've talked about with a number of people, if you look at the actual data, most of the data was predicated on, on concentrates, which are the, yeah. quote, lesser quality, lesser yeah. refined. And, and I, I point that out to people regularly. Most of the time, the middle-of-the-road to low-end product is actually the superior one. Yeah. Well, I think that was another place that the supplement industry has been stagnant for a decade. Pearl hormones were really the last new thing, and now that they're gone, and I guess I guess the SARMs are going to be kind of a new thing for a while, but they just had to keep reinventing the wheel. We had new thermogenics, and we had new creatines, and it was like, what do you concentrate? Why isolate? Double ion exchange, way isolate. I see organic grass-fed beef. It's like, just get some way, and... Uh, or, or even skip it all together and just eat some cottage cheese and skip the whole damn powdered sure. nonsense, which is my attitude. I don't want to be labeled as one of these whole food nuts because I'm not. But yeah. if you, I, I, I pointed out to people this way. I was like, name, tell me what's bad about table sugar. Oh, it's refined and it's simple and it's right. Like, no, it's everything yeah. that's in your protein container. I know, and I, and I don't disagree. You know, there's. There's been the, the strict nutritionists go, oh, you don't need protein powder, you get plant. Like, yeah, they're convenient. That's that's it for people that really have trouble hitting their protein requirements. And again, you know, hardcore skinny ectomorphs, you can't get into liquid nutrition gets the calories in. Agreed. People who work a busy day, if you want to get that snack at 4 p.m., a protein bar, protein, you know, for women who just don't like the taste of meat, that may be, an, you know, I agree with you. It's it, it, if nothing else, you always find that there's other nutrients in whole foods that have increased. Years ago when the calcium research broke, this is funny, I um, I decided I'm going to make the best calcium supplement ever. I spent weeks analyzing data. On, yeah, you, yeah, basically when I looked at all the research and added it all up, I came up with milk. And I'm like, well, that was a waste of time. But yeah, that that's I'm sure there's other cofactors in red meat on top of zinc, iron. I mean, there's a, there are factors that increase saturated fat, all, all sorts of things. That, that it, it is always working synergistically, and, and the fact is that humans evolve eating food, and there's a reason that vitamins and minerals tend to work better. We absorb them better from foods than we do from supplements. 
because of all those other cofactors that were there. Um, so there's probably a couple of other supplements that, you know, Seven's great. It'll add about 5% to your weight workout. It is a fantastic ergogenic. You don't mind being wired all the time. Um, a little surprised phosphatidylserine fell out of favor. It was expensive, though, which helps modulate cortisol levels from stress. That's kind of an interesting one. HMB might really... have some effect, actual effect. Which? Oh, yeah. HMB. Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, in untrained folks. There's been a couple of recent studies. It's always so damn expensive. Yep. I don't know if people are going to use an effective dose. There was one silly study out of Jacob Wilson's lab that got results that even drugs can't generate that are just the HMB-free acid, and that study was just stupid. He was like, in eight weeks, they gained 10 pounds of muscle and lost 8 pounds of fat. Like, yeah, no, they didn't. Um, sorry, yeah. that's, there's no, they didn't. And, uh, yeah, that's another one, but you got to take a lot of it, and I think it's still fairly expensive. I think you have to be training really intensely for it to matter. That was always, it seemed to stabilize the membrane structure. And I know, like, Poliquin and Brian Haycock were of the opinion that if you did really a lot of heavy eccentric, a lot of really high-tension work that you, you might, it's worth considering. Um, I'm sure there's a couple of others, but that, that's pretty much, you know. Remember, for years, we're like, why don't you open supplements? Store, like, because there'd be like five products, because it's all bullshit. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe. Like, and people always, you know, whenever a new product comes out, you always get the, well, what if this is the new one? Like, why are you such a critic? Why do you hate, why do you hate everything? And I'm like, look, I want to believe. I do. I've always wanted to believe in magic. That's what got me into the field. My 20s. <laughs> I wanted to believe in magic. And I looked at it, and there's no magic. Since I've been in this industry, and you've probably been in it longer, I have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of products come and go. The number that have hung around, the ones that work, and because again, like drugs, if it works, people will use them. They will, they will continue to be used. Creatine, two decades. I go, statistically speaking, I have seen less than one tenth, one, less than one percent, probably less than one tenth of one percent ever do anything to assume that this one will work is ridiculous. Now, if a year later, two years later, the research is there and people are using it, I'll be more than happy to, to, to admit I was wrong. I, I said this out loud on I my, I said this out loud on my video blog. I said, I said, and I've repeated it a hundred times. I have a five year rule. I won't mm. use a product unless it's still on the market five years after its inception. Yeah, absolutely. It, Cause and that, that's, that narrows it down. And if you, if you follow that rule, that literally means protein powders, multivitamins, creatine monohydrate, and that's about fun. fish oil. Yeah, maybe one right, or two fish others, oil, but, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that 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 actually is a really yeah. But again, everyone. I mean, I, again, I wish it were true. I wish it were. I mean, not to mention the fact that for the money you spend on this stuff, drugs are cheaper and work better. Just get drugs. Yeah, even low level, even a low dose of testosterone and then they will get will get it done. Just Absolutely. Even, even two, like even basin studies, like 300 milligrams was the cutoff. Yep. 200 had very little effect, but by the time you got to 300 plus, you were getting measurable growth. That's a baby dose. HRT five, is five, like 150 to 200. 500s conveniently two cc's, <laughs> and they come in 10 cc bottles, so it's conveniently five weeks worth of medication. Yeah. Exactly. 500 milligrams will make anybody grow a little yeah. all the time. Forever. It won't be it won't be huge, but it will be noticeable. Absolutely, yep. your recovery will be better. Your nutrient partitioning will be better. Your 
Strength may actually go up too quickly and cause you to get some joint problems, so be careful of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, flat out, they're cheaper than drugs, or cheaper than supplements, rather. Wow. Well, I appreciate all of that information. I'm sure the listeners are going to love that and kick it apart and send yeah, me all sorts of emails, which, which, awesome. I, which I welcome, which I welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. That is great stuff. Uh, I thank you. Um, something that I'm always deficient in is uh, marketing my guests. Everyone yeah. go to Lyle's website, buy his books. I own his books. I mean, this is literally, you know, just to, just to be clear here, folks, this is one of my go-to guys. You like what I have to say? It's mainly because I've read what this guy has to say. So buy his books. Go out there and get this stuff. It's great material. And, and only at, I think I mentioned this, but there's a teaser. I'm currently work, working on a book that, I mean, it's, it's killing me. I decided to look into women's issues because women truly are not just little men. They have issues to deal with that men will never face. Um, I'm currently trying to finish up this book on women's physiology, fat loss, and training, and I suspect that that will be the next topic Broderick and I will will address. So that will be this is a teaser. Hopefully, this time, late sometime. It's just it's amazing the differences that are there. Um, but we'll talk about that another time. That will be an absolute burn burner. I can't wait for that. Um, I, I'm actually looking forward to learning a lot because that's a subject yeah. that I'm less than perfectly versed. I'll be honest, I wish I'd never started. Like, I, I really, I wish I'd, I'm, I know now why I put this off for a decade, because I've been promising this book for a while, and the more I look into it, the worse it gets. Like, it's so, the system is so complicated, there's so many differences, and women show variability that men just never will. Well, I really look forward to that, and I'm sure that uh, at least a handful of our listeners do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for now, you've covered fat loss, you've just buried us in, in weight and muscle gain. Yeah. And, uh, wow. Un- un- until next time, uh, Mr. McDonald, that, that's, uh, that's amazing and I appreciate it. Cool. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.